This episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is brought to you by OWC, Whisper Room, and Eventide. So get ready to rock. So here's Joe Walsh, one of the greatest guitarists of, of all time. The first guitar he pulls out to Fernandez, a Fernandez V. To me, it looked like the cheapest guitar ever. I'm like, are you kidding? We're at Johnny's place. The place is covered in guitars. And I'm like, grab any of these and it's going to be better. It's like, no, this is great. And he plays, and the tone is incredible. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. If you're sick of bothering the neighbors when you are trying to record your music or ruining your recordings with outside noises, but you're not ready to spend a ton of money on permanent studio construction yet, then consider getting a Whisper Room ISO booth for your studio. Whisper Room offers the instant solution for a comfortable, quiet, ventilated, portable ISO booth with easy line of sight for recording vocals, guitar amps, or even drums. Get 10% off the 4x4 or 4x6 booth when you mention recording studio rock stars. Go to whisperroom.com or click the link in the show notes below. What do Michael Brower, Joe Ciccarelli, Mike Kozowski, Dave Pensato, and George Massenberg all have in common? They all have great things to say about Eventide. Originating in a New York City basement in 1971 with the original Instant Phaser and H910 Harmonizer, Eventide continues to transform the sound of music with the iconic H9000 Harmonizer, visionary guitar effects like the H9 pedal, and now a whole suite of incredible plugins for your studio. Go to eventide.com to learn more or click the link in the show notes below. This episode is sponsored by OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, your trusted source for memory and speed upgrades, DIY installs, and used Macs for your studio. Let OWC focus on keeping your studio Mac in killer condition so that you can focus on making great music. Why ditch your existing Mac when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and learn how you can supercharge your studio Mac. The speed to create, the capacity to dream. Find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Sean. Welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Justin Corky Cordelieu. Am I saying that right? That's perfect. All right, sweet, man. A platinum-selling Nashville producer, engineer, and mixer who has worked with all sorts of great talent, learning under greats like bluegrass legend Bill Vorndick, who worked with Marty Robbins, Ralph Stanley, Alison Krauss, mixing guru Chuck Ainley, working with the Dixie Chicks, Mark Knopfler, Miranda Lambert, and master mixer Mike Shipley, working with Def Leppard, Shania Twain, Maroon 5, and Aerosmith. Justin studied music and engineering at Middle Tennessee State University, also my alma mater, became the night manager for Soundstage Studios before moving out to L.A. to work with Mike Shipley, and Justin then teamed up with producer, songwriter, and musician Tommy Henriksen, Uh, He partnered with Tommy, developing artists, negotiating record deals 
with Warner Brothers, Geffen, and Interscope touring and doing front of house. And then in 2008, Tommy and Justin moved their operations to Nashville, Tennessee, where they teamed up with legendary producer Bob Ezrin of Pink Floyd, Alice Cooper, and Kiss. Alongside Bob, Justin worked with some of the biggest artists in history, including Paul McCartney, Deep Purple, Alice Cooper, Joe Perry, Johnny Depp, Fish, Keisha, and Kiss, to name just a few. Working out of Ezrin's Anarchy Studio, Justin's work has gone on to gain international acclaim, including numerous number ones. And Justin has also had one foot in Nashville's country music scene. In 2014, Justin engineered and mixed Jared Neiman's High Noon record. The first single, Drink to That All Night, scored a two-week number one at Country Radio and earned an RIAA Platinum certification. Congrats on that. Thank you. Justin continues to engineer and mix in all genres, from the Mongolian rock band Hangai to Fish, from Alice Cooper to Taylor Swift. Justin brings his unique musicality to each project and draws from his pedigree to inject creativity and energy into every record. That's awesome, man. Please welcome Justin Corky Cordelieu to Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, Justin or Corky, are you ready to rock? Both. Both. We are ready to rock. All Thank right, you. Cool, man. <laughs> Is it like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing? Are you like... Is there, it is started there like off good Justin, bad Corky or something like yeah, that? Well, it started off like that. And then it just, the, the Corky nickname just, it had a life of its own. And now everyone just calls me Corky. Um, every now and then when I first meet someone or if it's like a, you know, an important meeting, I'll go by Justin. But then as the comfort, you know, grows, then, then I'm, I'm Corky. <laughs> nice. All right. All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll see how comfortable we get in the podcast. Awesome. Awesome. Sounds all right, good. So, so tell us how you got started out in recording. Give us a little bit more of the history. I know you have a background in music and studying music too, before yes. you sort of got into the recording side. Yeah. So I, I started, um, playing trombone like in, in third grade and I, I was really into it. Uh, I was classically trained private lessons. Uh, and then, and then I started playing guitar as you do in high school and middle school and, and I played in a few bands, uh, and the the trombone thing was awesome. You know, I, I played in a lot of symphonies and jazz, and and I got to tour Australia. I played in the Sydney Opera House, and that uh, was just and that was really an important. What, what instrument were you playing? You were playing trombone, trombone, trombone. Yeah. Right so, uh, so yeah, I, I I had a lot of fun, but I knew I didn't want to do that as a career because uh, you know I was always just reading the the you know, guitar, guitar world, guitar player, uh, magazines. And I was looking through all the catalogs, AMS and, and thoroughbred and all those, you know, from back in the day, I, I just had gear lust. I, I wanted all of the, all of the pedals, all the amps, all the, you know, everything. And, uh, and I was in a, in a metal band playing guitar and, and I knew I wanted to do something in music, but also something that, that had gear involved. And, Somehow, I don't know how, but I got this uh, mix magazine in the mail, and I was like, "What is this?" So I'm looking through it. I had no idea what anything was, but I saw some guy recording a band sitting behind a console that had a, a screen. I think it was a nine thousand had a uh, a computer screen in it. I thought, "What 
the hell is that? I want to do that. I want to be that guy. I'm sure he's got a cool job. So, uh, and that was like junior year in, in college. So I started looking, you know, at recording programs and went to MTSU and I thought, well, this is it. This is perfect. So junior year in college, you were already at MTSU or you were oh, just, I'm sorry, junior year in high school. Oh, in high school? Yes, oh, well, in so. high school is when I got that. And and so we were doing all the college tours and stuff. And and uh, and MTSU was the one that, that seemed to stand out because you could get- And where were get, you? Were you already in Nashville at that time? No, I was in Pittsburgh, nearby? just in outside Pittsburgh. of Pittsburgh. Okay, cool. So it was a bit of a- you know, yeah, I got a, drawn down there from Boston. Oh yeah, yeah. So you know, you, you had probably had the the chance you could do Berkeley or you know whatever. It's yeah, expensive. I went. I went and looked at Berkeley, and then Berkeley was more money than I had to spend. Yeah, and then they were like, well, you know, there's this there's this magazine called Mix Magazine, and and uh, they just put out their yearly issue where they they list all the music recording schools all across the country. Yeah, and I was like, no way, and so I like ran off to the store, got it, <laughs> and then I just rode away to all of them. You know. Yeah. Um, so you moved from Pittsburgh down to Nashville. Do you remember going to Nashville thinking, man, I sure do love country music. That's a place for me. Oh, no, no. I didn't know anything about country music. I, I was, I mean, when I was in high school, I was into like, you know, Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin, but then Dream Theater and, you know, all the shredders, Joe Satriani, Eric Johnson, Steve, Steve Morris was, uh, I never got into Steve Vai, but I loved Steve Morris and, you know, my my room, I had posters of, you know, Joe Perry and Slash and, you know, I would just rip out these, uh, these ads and put them all over, uh, my walls and stuff. So I, you know, I was, uh, Joe Satriani, that's surfing with the aliens, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know that uh, John Cuniberti has been on the podcast? We talked all about making that record. Oh, you know, have to go listen to that one. I, I will, I will listen to that on my way home <laughs> tonight. I swear. Uh, cause I loved that record. Oh man. It was, uh, yeah. So that, that was, that was where I was, you know, so moving down to Murfreesboro was, it was a bit of a culture shock and Nashville wasn't, what Nashville is today. Yeah, definitely. Back then, this was ninety uh, eight, and uh, the good thing was they had they just started the Preds came to town, so there was hockey, which was I'm right. A huge, that mattered to you in Pittsburgh. Oh yeah, I was a huge hockey fan, you know. So uh, so that was cool. There were a few things that kind of you know uh, kind of kept that that tie back to Pittsburgh. Uh, Piranha Brothers sandwiches. It was a big big deal for me, but. Uh, but yeah, anyway, uh, MTSU was, uh, was great. And the, the best part of it was the internship getting to work with, uh, Bill Vorndick was amazing. And some of, some of my favorite memories are, are interning with him. So tell us more about uh, Bill Vorndick. Who is he? So Bill Vorndick is like the bluegrass guru, you know, he, uh, he has been in it so long and has done so many bluegrass records and, you know, he's won so many Grammys and awards and stuff. Uh, but he's just this great human, great guy. Uh, his acoustic miking technique is pretty incredible. Ooh, we got to ask you some of those. Yeah. What you learned from, um, do you remember some of the stuff you learned about oh, yeah. miking acoustics? Yeah, that absolutely. Just, he, he actually- Just go uh, for it, man. We don't have to okay, come back. We don't cool. have to circle back for that question. You well, just yeah, tell us right yeah. now. So acoustics, uh, it, Bill would always say, and this kind of this is one of the uh, inspirational quotes that I could, I could uh, tell you, but uh, he would always say, you listen with two ears, why would you mic an acoustic with just one? So he's all about uh, 
you know, stereo miking acoustic instruments. And, you know, it, the way that he would do it, it sounded amazing. You know, one kind of, uh, uh, you know, where the, where the neck hits the bridge on the bottom right. and then one uh, close to the body. And it would, it would simulate how a player would actually hear. Ooh, I hold on rock stars. I'm going to describe what Justin's <laughs> doing right now. So you're, you're doing that thing where you're playing, but you're also like turning and tilting your head. Like you're sort of leaning in with your left ear towards the neck of the guitar. If you're yes. the righty guitar player. Right. Which is always a confusing thing. Cause really it's your left it's, hand yeah. that does all the work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but like your left ear is leaning in a little bit and your right ear is almost. Yeah. So he would bit. kind of mimic that with the, with the stereo I miking, was, I think that was the direction you did it, or did you do I, I your did right it, ear I did it like the, the hand? It, it doesn't really matter. Right, yeah, right, that right. was just the concept. Never mind. I take it all back. I thought the head twist was yeah. super important. Well, you know, it, maybe it is. I, I don't know. I just put him up to, to where it, it sounded good. But that was his whole philosophy, and and it was it was spot on. I mean, you got to make sure it's in phase. Yeah. All right. So let's, we got to describe things pretty verbally because yes. it's a podcast. But um, the the neck. Mike is sort of like that classic 12th fret location that we're all familiar with. Kind right? of a little bit lower. A little bit lower. Uh, right. A little bit lower and uh and yeah, pointing, pointing up. up a little. Yeah, I believe that's where he had it. That's where I that's where do you it. Find that's where it kind of yeah. oh, I, I feel like it always sounds really good. We only good care about that. you now anyway. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's oh, all about me. All right, and then the other one then is, the other one was was at the body uh a, slightly above and facing down toward uh, kind of the body uh, below sort of like the bridge. Below um, the bridge. Yeah. Oh, and it was lower than the bridge. No, it's above the so bridge. So it was like. But it's pointed towards lower. Yeah, it's above It's above the body and, and pointed down towards like right right below the, the bridge. Cool. So, yeah. And when you do that, I just remember soloing up each one of those and, and they wouldn't sound amazing until you put them together. Right. And as long as you got the, it's the complete the, picture. Yeah. If you got the phase right, it was yeah. pretty incredible. Hold on. Let me see if you look amazing with just one eye. Yeah. Two is better. My Try left closing might be better them. than That's... my right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, yeah, that was, that was pretty crazy. And, and he had, I was just learning things about, you know, like the fiddle and uh, all of that was so good. And the coolest part was, we would do everything kind of, it was, it was a spot kind of like this. Uh, uh, he had built a studio in his house. Uh, it was an old moose lodge and you go, you go up this windy road and, uh, and you're, you're like, you feel like you are outside of civil civilization and he's got acres and acres and acres. And is that and, just outside of Nashville? Yeah. It's, uh, like Charlotte Pike area, you know, just on the West side. Damn. And, uh, at night, he would have moonshine, uh, moon pies, and RC cola, and you would hear some of the most amazing musicians just jamming. We'd we'd have a fire, you know. They'd just be you know playing by the fire, and then at sunset we would go out, and there was a big fire tower, and so we would climb the fire tower, watch the sunset. Then his wife would have a big meal ready, uh, you know, for dinner, and we'd all sit by this you know huge table. It was, I mean. The most picturesque uh, recording session, especially for bluegrass music, that you could possibly imagine. Yeah, yeah. bluegrass and, is definitely oh, vibe oriented. Oh yeah, and it was just everyone felt so relaxed, and 
and he was he was the master of just letting it happen, you know, and getting great sounds and and providing the direction. And uh, so I learned a ton from him, and it was it was Very really cool, really incredible. And so you went into it. You do play guitar too, though, right? I do. Uh, um, I hesitate to say that in this town because the guitar players are just unbelievable. But yeah. you know, I will. I I can. I can hold my own if I'm given time, you know, and I still love, it's still fun to play. I, yeah. I, you know, I've heard that so many times. Like I, I don't call myself a guitar player in Nashville and I'm always like, Oh, come on, everybody. Yeah, I know. I need to, just, I need to man just enjoy up it. It's ain't about the fact that there's somebody who's brilliant. There's always going to be Andre Segovia every time you pick up in a, yeah. Uh, you know, like a, a nylon string guitar. And That's true. Do. I think I said his name, right? Didn't I? Uh, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm, yeah, uh, the the famous classical guitarist, right. you know, like that will I'll never sound as good as. Um, but yeah, so no, that's cool, man. So then, um, any other acoustic instruments? Do you remember learning cool ways to record them? Yeah. Um, How about upright bass? That must have been an important thing, or not? Upright bass. Yeah, I'm not. I'm trying to remember back. I was taking notes like crazy. Uh, it, I remember he would. Record it uh, at Masterlink Studios, good, but I think he, if I remember, I think he had like an EV. Uh, it was it was kind of it had kind of a a, a ball. Uh, the 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 diaphragm was was kind of like on a ball and it was adjustable. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, I I know he used that and probably that a is. DI or something. Uh, but <laughs> you know, I I'm not. D25 or AKG. No, you said it was an EV. Not I an think AKG. it was an EV. Yeah. Um, well, somebody, somebody can, is listening. I was like, come on guys. Yeah. I could be totally wrong. In. Like this is, I mean, this is a long time ago and I'm yeah. just kind of like, I can, I can picture it in my, in my head. Well, that's all right. Um, we, we keep rolling. I mean, you've, 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 the important takeaway was the stereo guitar mic and that you do. Yeah. That's, learning, that's the big thing. Big and there's, deal. there was one other thing. Uh, and I, I hope I'm not giving away any of his, trade secrets here or anything, but, uh, but fiddle, he would always put a piece of gaff tape on like the space between the, uh, the bridge and the tailpiece. And that took away the honkiness. Oh, wow. It was of a fiddle. Yeah. Amazing. I have a fiddle. I just got my bow re or I bought a new bow. Yeah. And I'll probably re-recording again. So I'm going to have to try that Dude, trick. Try it. it I, I did so that. It's, it's, it runs on one side of the fiddle from the bridge down to where the neck. It just goes the, across, you know, where the, so the, there's the bridge and then you have the neck and there's that little. Little area little of wood area. underneath between. Yeah. And you just put it on the strings. Put it on the string over top of oh, the string. Oh, I see. It's, yeah. it's like it's almost like a dampener yeah. on the the non-played side of the string. Exactly. Just past the bridge. Exactly. Okay. And I don't know why. I don't know what it does, but man, it works. That's uh, cool. That's yeah. great. What yeah. a good trick. All right. I'm excited <laughs> to try that. Yeah. There you go. All right. Um, Sorry, Bill. <laughs> and then you you went on from recording with Bill. What was your next? So oddly enough, the first day that I was working with Bill, uh, he was doing, um, you know, those old Tascam eight track uh, DA88s and 98s and stuff. So he was doing transfers for, um, uh, what's his name? Jerry Douglas, the the Dobro player. Uh, He was doing transfers and Chuck Ainley was mixing it. So my very first day and I was... (laughs) 
was so awkward <laughs> because I was so nervous. I'd seen Chuck's name and I had the pictures in, in this book. It was called Young Guns. Uh, and so I was like, oh man, this is, this is Chuck Ainley. This is amazing. So uh, I was sitting there and so I kind of met him and I kind of knew him. And so I thought, you know, for my second internship, I, I, I think I'd like to work with Chuck. That'd be great. So first of all, let me preface this by saying you're a smart man to already be thinking about a quote, second internship. Cause I've heard people, you know, they, I, I've worked with students who have done internships today and some of them just, I think, think that an internship is just a requirement, a school requirement. And that is like, school, you know, that is exactly. Yeah. And it's like, if you, every time you're interning, you're, you do have the potential to have a door open to you that wouldn't have been opened before. Absolutely. And you can be in a new place, learning new stuff and meeting new people, which is pretty great. Yeah. And I mean, that's the time that you, you know, that, that you can absorb so much. Like that's your job is to absorb and then help them out. And, and so, uh, and that's your, that's your payment is getting to learn from a master. So, you know, always, this is the, one of the big takeaways. I think if you're, if you're starting out, uh, is to, uh, when you're in the studio with someone, you have to pay attention. You have to learn you, you are, you are absorbing all of the cool things and you don't have to use everything that they do. You might not like, you know, so-and-so's snare sound or so-and-so's kick sound or whatever, but the way they do it, the way they approach it, all of those philosophies you can use, uh, in your own, uh, recording. So going back to how I got in with, with Chuck, uh, so I remembered that. And then at the end of, I was, I was conflicted because I liked Bill so much. And I had, it was, it was amazing. It was almost like a Mr. Miyagi, uh, sort of <laughs> experience. It was great. I loved it. Uh, but I knew I needed something. I needed a different experience for, for the second internship. So, uh, so I just cold called, uh, Chuck. And so I called soundstage and I said, Hey, this is Justin, uh, calling for Chuck Ainley. And they're, like, okay, we'll put you through. I was like, wow, that was really easy. And so he picks up and he goes, Hey, Justin, how are you doing? I'm like, hey, he remembers me. This is amazing. Well, he thought I was Justin Kneebank. And- oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I was not Justin Kneebank. No, I was some idiot intern, you know, sitting there. And so I kind of had to ex- awkwardly explain the situation. And he's like, he thought about it for a second. He thought, well, I, I don't ever have an intern. I never do internships. I was like, please. And he said, okay, I'll give you a shot. And that's awesome. Yeah. Man. And so I called up and then I called MTSU and said, Hey, I, he said, yes, could I do this? And they made it happen. And, uh, they were like, you got the Chuck Gainley in? Yeah. 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 And, and I, this is just me being, uh, just ignorant is, is to how difficult that should have been. You know, and uh, but that helps. That's what I did too. I just picked yeah. up the phone and called Brad Jones over at Alex the Great because he was the producer on the name of the record that I saw, thought sounded amazing. Yeah, and, and that and is he great. happened to answer, and <laughs> yeah. I got to talk to him, and it was like all of it was so unlikely, you know. Yeah, and but and that's another thing. You just never know. Uh, so put yourself out there, give it a shot. I, I gave him a call, and and he said, sure. Let's give it a shot. So, so what did you do when you were interning for Chuck? So at first, 
um, it was, it, he had a tray of, he, he liked tea and, and, you know, some snacks. So I would make sure that that, that he always had, you know, hot water and tea and, you know, the snacks were arranged nicely. And then, uh, sometimes it would be a, you know, a cold drink. And so I'd have ice and it would, it would kind of sweat, you know, all the little internship things. And, and so I'd make sure that it was clean and, uh, I would, I'd have to label some masters if he was printing, you know, some masters label those and, and everything. So, uh, a lot of times it was just sitting there and being completely quiet. Like I wasn't there. Yeah. Which don't disturb, do not disturb. And that does not come naturally to me. Like if there's silence and I'm with someone then I want to break that silence, but it was a great learning experience. So young guys, if you're starting out and interning, say nothing. You know, I don't think they do this in schools like at MTSU when they teach people how to be an intern, mm-hmm. but they should bring all the students that, that want to be interns into a classroom um, and just, or, or like the intern coordinator, which I think is Dan Pfeiffer now. Hey, Dan. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Dan. Dan. Dan should invite the students to come into the office and go, I'm going to give you your first lesson on interning. I'm going to work and you just sit there quietly. And that would be say great. For like half an hour. Yeah. And if they can do that, then they're ready to intern. Yeah. Seriously. Because it is. Or you say, or you say like, Dan, Dan, this is a message to you. <laughs> or you say, <laughs> sit there for half an hour and see if you can figure out what, what I might need before I need it, but don't interrupt me. Yes. Well, that, that is what got me the job at Soundstage. That last point that you just said. So, you know, I was, I, I think I was actually not the best intern. Um, until, yeah, I was, I was trying to do, you know, whatever, you know, keep the tray going and try to think, think ahead. And, and I had made a mistake, uh, labeling some tapes. I didn't, he had done a new version, a new revision, and I didn't write DNU on the master. What is DNU? Oh, do not Uh, not use, use, you know, or mark it in some, you know, some way that, that they would know that that was the previous pass was not the one to master. It was the next one, uh, which also was a very important thing. Uh, and I didn't, I just didn't know. And I got reamed for that. Cause that was, that could have been a very big mistake. Yeah. And so it was kind of in the doghouse. And I was thinking about, I was thinking about what I could do to kind of get back into his better graces. And this is so silly, but it made all of the difference. Uh, in in his lounge, there was a, f- a freezer with an ice maker, but they had the wrong bucket to catch the ice. So it would always spill all over the floor. And so I just called up. I found the model number and I found the, the customer service number and I called them up and, you know, I had them on hold and I, I was trying to order that part. I said, Chuck, I'm going to get, I popped my head in. I said, uh, I'm on the phone with, you know, GE or whoever made it. Uh, to get a new ice bucket for you. Um, it's going to be, you know, $25. Is that okay? And he looked and he was puzzled. He goes, yeah, yeah, that would be, that'd be great. And he handed me his credit card. And so I took care of it. And from then on that, that changed everything. And he got me a job at soundstage, which is how I got the night manager position and, uh, and the rest, you know, just kind of snowballed from there. That's so. great, man. What a great story. I'm glad you <laughs> yeah. shared that. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I, I, you know, we don't have to talk about interning forever, but there are plenty of people who are listening who are at that stage would like, yeah. you know, how do I get into a studio? How do I get something going? And, um, you know, hearing you describe what your tasks were, did, were they, in fact, the only engineering task you did, you totally screwed up and got chewed <laughs> up for yeah. everything else is like, what, what can you do probably with no training other than hopefully some, you know, common sense life training? Well, you can probably hopefully make sure that, you know, the food and drink and stuff and snacks yes. are ready to go and that the dishes are clean yeah, and that the bathroom's not gross, you know, and it's yeah. just nice that it feels like a nice place. Hopefully our moms taught us that, you know, growing up <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. And then, um, you know, uh, um, you can find something that looks like it could be better and try and leave the place better than you found it. And that's Absolutely. a really important lesson because I think sometimes, uh, you know, somebody who's going to intern can walk into a studio and they see things that are a little rickety or they're not quite, you know, all the way there. And they just think like, oh, that's an old funky place or something. That's like, no, like <laughs> a moment ago, that was a brand new thing that yeah. is getting, you know, used and and in a studio environment and things you know, entropy. Entropy yeah. happens in studios. It takes uh, proactively trying to organize, make it nicer, make it cleaner, make it better. Yeah, that's how you, studios are really nice. I mean, of yeah. course, when they're brand new, they look pretty, right. pretty shiny. But that but doesn't even, last too even long. brand new studios need you know things happen and, and it happens quickly. You know, yeah. someone bumps into a thing or you know kicks a door stop. When I was the the night manager at uh, at Soundstage, I I wore a Leatherman. I looked like a dork, but I I didn't care. <laughs> Did you but, have a cell phone yeah. holder on your hip? <laughs> I had like the Batman belt, you know? <laughs> a, a Blackberry. Yeah, a Blackberry, grappling hook, all that stuff. But the the the, the Leatherman, it was perfect because I just those little things like the, you know, the doorstop came off. So I just fixed it right there. Or, you know, someone had an issue with this. I could just fix it. You know, I had pliers and Chuck had got me. You know, one of those headlamps. Oh, I love that. And, oh, it was too. the best gift ever. I still have it. And, uh, and and so, yeah, just being able to fix those problems as soon as they happen or before uh, makes all the difference in the world. And, and that increases your value as an engineer tenfold. Yeah. Recording Studio Rockstars Academy is the place you can go to take your recording, mixing, and mastering to the next level. And you can start right now with my free introduction to mixing course, Mix Master Bundle. This course will show you how to get pro-sounding mixes from your home studio with free and stock plugins and Pro Tools. And the best part is that these mixing techniques will work for you in any DAW, whether you are in Logic, Cubase, PreSonus Studio One, Reaper, or anything else. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to Mix Master Bundle to get started for free now or look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode. So, um, yeah, great. Awesome. Well, so how long were you at Soundstage? And can you describe what Soundstage Studios is like as a place? Soundstage. Or, or is it still, it's still in existence now? Or yeah, it, yeah. Okay. And, and, and it's, uh, I think it's better than ever now. Um, so when I was there, it was right at the point where Napster and MP3, this was uh, 2002 to 2004. So I was there for about two years. And, uh, and we had the main soundstage campus, you know, which had, uh, three, four, like five studios in it. And then 
We had a place called Blueberry Hill, which is now the Ruckus Room. Uh, Jamie Tate works works out of there. Uh, we had two rooms over there, and then we had the Groove Room and a little place called Double Take. So they they had two rooms. So it was really a collection of studios. Yeah. And as the night manager, I was in charge of setups for all of them. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. Yeah, and I would start at 4.30 at night, and you know, you'd have to wait until everyone would get finished because – I might I might have two or three interns or I might just have one or none. And so I'd have to do everything by myself and do all the setups and turn the rooms, clean the rooms, uh and all of that. It was it was exhausting. But it, it was one of those learning experiences where you had to do everything. If you ran into a problem at three AM, you couldn't call someone and say, Hey, what's up? You had to figure it out. So were you actually setting up mics and stands for yeah. sessions? Yeah, they would get send me a setup sheet. So And setting, was it just you or did you have a, a staff under you to, to do uh, stuff? I would have maybe an intern or, or two. Um so yeah, it was great for them because so they were driving around town from studio to studio in the middle of the night. With a rickety old van and a bunch of mics in it. And cue boxes, those old Q8s and, uh, and mic stands and all that stuff. And just trying to get everything to work. And, you know, it was one of those things where if there were a few tracking sessions, we'd have to borrow some, th- some, some pieces. So before all of the other studios closed down, you had to make sure that you could borrow you know, a couple of Q8s or, you know, some 414s or something like that. Uh, and Quad was great and Cardi Day and, you know, all the ones around town, Emerald. Uh, they'd always help out and we'd help them out if, yeah. if they needed, uh, which was really cool. But yeah, it was a lot of work and, and for not man. a lot of money. Yeah, I'll bet, <laughs> man. Was... You know, it's funny because now I'm looking at my own intern experience and I was offered a night job and I turned it down because I interpreted it as, you know, want you to come in at about midnight and fix stuff till late in the morning. Yeah. Um, and it I, maybe I would have felt differently about it if it had been setting up for sessions. I would have yeah. felt like I was participating in the music making somehow. I, I feel like some some of the engineers who gave the setups to the assistant thought that the assistant was going to do it. Right. And then the engineer would leave and the assistant would come and say, hey, here, I need this set up by 8 a.m. And and so, yeah, it was it was a really good learning experience, but probably a little – it would have been great if it was a, a little less – uh, to do. And also every time we, cause we were moving Pro Tools rigs around, it was right when HD had come out. So there was only one HD rig or maybe two. And then, you know, a bunch of the old 888 rigs. And, and so we'd always calibrate before a mix session, always calibrate the inputs and outputs. Right. And, uh, with, you know, with the little, um, Phillips head screwdriver uh, on the God. front of the unit. Yeah, well, it was great that. for the 888s. Those were awesome because they were on the front. And then the the HDs, as you know, the right, 192s. Right, to go on the back and with a tweaker. Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And then our, our motto was always, uh, you know, when you turn the room for a new client, it had to look like Mix Magazine, like the color, cover of Mix Magazine. So it had to vacuum all the walls, vacuum you know, the console Interesting. and all that. So let's, let's clarify that vacuuming the walls is because we have so much fabric on the walls, yes, right? Yes. Yes. And, and there are some, uh, some vents behind it, some, you know, uh, uh so pull the so dirt pull and the, dust yeah. toward the wall. Especially if there was like, you know, incense or yeah. whatever, uh, happening in there, they would get, they would get dirty. So you'd have to vacuum all of that. And, uh, but anyway, it's, 
that experience, as painful as it was, was awesome. What are some of the things that you remember learning about uh, the different kinds of setups, or did you did you discover that mostly people did the same setups for sessions? Yes, th- there were some things that were um, pretty standard, you know, D one twelve and the kick or the Beta fifty two, um, which is one that I I prefer. Uh, but I learned that from doing the setups, and uh, you know, fifty seven on snare. Uh, and a lot of people would use the you know four twenty ones on toms, uh, and then I did a setup for someone that used four fourteens, and and I heard the end product, and I thought, man, that sounds great. So I started using four fourteens on my own cool sessions, and I I love four fourteens on toms; those are my my favorite. Um, but you know, some guys d- did top and bottom mics with a special cable that reverse the phase for the bottom. Oh, right. So let's describe that. I'd seen that too. And I built one once yeah. to experiment with it, but it is basically saying, well, if we're going to put a 57 on top of a snare and a 57 on the bottom, let's build, let's have them both go into one Y cable mic. Yeah. So it's a single output where the phase gets flipped Yeah. right there. And, and you, I, just, you just record one track, but it's right. really top and bottom, equally yeah. equal levels, I guess. Yeah. So I, personally, I wouldn't do it on, on the snare, but I saw it on uh, on toms a lot. And, uh, I, I personally haven't tried that, but I, I kind of keep it in the back of my head. Yeah. But a what session. a cool idea, because one of the challenges with double micing toms, which I've have done the only, in fact, the only, I think the only place we ever did it was with Steve Albini and it really did sound pretty amazing. Yeah. And I was like, that sounds great. You know? And then of course, like it's occasionally or other times I'm like, why don't I do that again? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, you know, usually the answer is cause like, it's just a lot of tracks and you're you're yeah. like trying to cut down on tracks. I guess technically if it's only a four piece drum kit, it's only two more tracks. But right. Still, but that's a cool trick. You know, the double the Y cable for the top and bottom yeah. of the tom means you don't need extra tracks for your toms, so you're just getting double mics on yeah. them. Yeah. So And what mics? Those would probably be with the four twenty ones, not with the four fourteens. You can't do that trick with uh condensers on right, them. Right. Right. Yeah. Maybe you unless could. you had a, unless you had maybe a, a like a phantom power supply that you could feed to both in between. Oh, right. Right. And then, and then do the I trick would, on the way back. Yeah. I don't know. I do. I do Just, have one of those supplies. Well, there you go. Give it a <laughs> shot. Let us know. <laughs> All right, uh, cool. Any other stuff was set up? You remember like where it was like a light bulb moment for you? Uh, th- there were a few, um, a few room placements, you know, so, uh, one of the engineers said that he'd like to, you know, kind of, put the rooms so that they face away from the symbols so they get more of the wash and less of the crash, uh, which I always thought was pretty cool. One of the best. And how far away do you think those mics were from the actual drum kit? Uh, this was probably 10, 15 feet or so. Right. And it was probably in cardioid mode. Yeah. Yeah. They were actually, these were uh 4033s, So they would have been in cardioid. So, um, so I thought that was always cool. I always think about that when I'm, placing my room mics. But then the biggest thing, and this, I wasn't even, I was just at this session. This is many years later. I was just watching tall Hirschberg, uh, do a setup. And this was in Henson studio B, which is an amazing room. And, uh, and he used, you know, a pair of C12s as overheads. We actually did two sessions and this was great because one session he used a pair of C12s as the overheads and the second second session, he used a pair of 67s. And so I got to hear the difference. Uh, it was the same drummer. It was Abel Boreal Jr., who 
is a monster. He's just, he's Paul McCartney's drummer uh, and he's out of this world. Uh, but I got to, I got to hear that setup. So we had, you know, C12s as overheads and then kind of a standard drum miking, close mic uh, setup. And then he had a mono mic about halfway down through the room and he put it, it was a ribbon and he put it down all the way almost at the floor. So it was like right at the kick level. Right. And then he had a pair of rooms, you know, back behind. Uh, and, and I've kind of copied a similar setup ever since. And having that low mono room is just so cool because it's not getting a lot of the wash from the cymbals. Right. But it's getting a lot, you know. And you, the, there's all the low end is accumulating at the boundary of the floor too. Yeah, right? yeah. And that then, you know, when you go to crush it, then the kick is tri- triggering the the compression. And so you get this really cool pumping that's triggered by the kick. Nice. It just makes it sound huge. And, so and do I you usually, use a, a Coles 4038 for that or something? Or you know, I've used, um, in the past I've used, I haven't used a Coles, but uh, a 121 or a 122 Royer. Right. Uh, they sound great. Um, and then, you know, I've used a uh, uh, an RCA 77, and that sounded pretty cool. Uh, and then recently, just uh, a few months ago, I used uh, an M249, and it was in cardioid, and it sounded amazing. And that's not a ribbon, right? That or no. is it? That's is that's a condenser, right? That's it's a, a tube, tube mic. Yeah. yeah, tube condenser. And I mean, that's one of the greatest mics. How ever far made. away do you feel like that mic needs to be? If you're if you're recording about to record drums in a different studio. Um, <laughs> How big of a room do you do you picture where that miking works well for you? So this last session that I did was, I would say it was about maybe 10 feet. Um, you know, not super far, kind of a medium distance away. Uh, and well, we're talking a, about big room spaces. For yeah, drums. yeah. But I think I think you could get away with it being closer. Um, because yeah, you're, you, Do you have much experience recording drums in home studio environments? Uh, I've done it a few times. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, actually, a lot of the Hollywood vampires was more of a. We did it at Johnny Depp's house. Oh man, we got it. <laughs> we got to get into that. Um, tell us a little bit about the drum technique, and then we'll come back. We'll circle back to, okay. to really dig into that one too. Okay, cool. So, um, yeah, as far as drum technique regarding the session, well, yeah, you were saying Hollywood that was Vamp- a home studio environment. Oh right? yeah, yeah. So that was a home studio environment, and. Um, and so it was, you know, kind of re- renegade, you know, using all kind of mismatched outboard pre's and stuff. And then, um, you know, just whatever was available on, on drums. So it was a similar setup and, uh, you know, everyone played in one room, not a whole lot of isolation or anything. So, um, yeah, I think I'm trying to remember exactly, but I, I think it was just a few feet away, the the mono room. All right, cool. Um, so basically, we should try that trick even in our home studio. Yeah, yeah, give room. it a shot. Well, I mean, if you're recording on Pro Tools or any sort of, you know, DAW where you have unlimited tracks, and you if you have an available mic and mic pre, give it a shot. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm all about that. You know, get the clean stuff, get your overheads, get your close mics, you know, get your snare kick, all that. Um but then also, you know, have some fun mics, have some color in there too. I mean, you can always mute it. It doesn't cost anything to record it or mute it. So, uh, so have it as an option. You know, that, there was one, one time I, I, I was just walking through an isolation booth and they had a pass through. I think it was at, at uh, 
Sienna Studios, which used to be Quad. And uh, I passed by it. I heard the drums coming through the pass through the PVC pipe. And I thought, man, that sounds incredible. And I didn't record it at that time because we were just moving so quickly and we'd already, uh, you know, done several songs like that. But, uh, but this new studio that we have, uh, it's got a few pass throughs to it. So that's going to be one of my things. I'm going to put a mic right in that PVC and who knows, it, it could be awesome. That's cool, man. That's, I love experimenting with stuff like that. And you really do have to give yourself the, the breathing room to experiment like that. Cause it is hard to do when you're under pressure, Yeah, but you notice it. But then if you can just hold on to that, maybe take, have a little notepad where you're writing down notes of things yeah. you want to try later. Then come back and, and like explore it and see. Uh, I recently learned, you know, a couple of great drum miking techniques from Vance Powell oh, um, about awesome. adding some distortion mics into the kit. Mm-hmm. And now I'm doing, uh, and I've heard other people talk about it too. Um, uh, John Finnell just talked about it. Uh, yeah. In fact, about um, doing, uh, you know, a mic that's kind of the mono soul mic where it's just right above the kick and right next to the side of the snare. And so it's in the midst of all the drum shells. Yeah. And that one, um, using the, the Dr. Alien Smith dirt mic, which is the, it's a bullet mic with built-in distortion circuit. <laughs> and so you like stick that in right in the middle of the drum kit. That sounds awesome. And then, a note of that myself. Yeah, and then I just been doing uh, the SM58. Um, we did that down at Bonner. We just tape it on the floor, sort of down on the hi-hat side, and I don't know whether that's even critical, um, sort of at the bottom of the stool over a little bit. And then that one goes through a Sans amp, yes. and then you can kind of dial in what kind of tone seems to fit That's awesome. with the drum kit, you know? I had a, an engineer who, uh, uh, this is when I was assisting or doing whatever. <laughs> I was not engineering, but he he said, you know what? Fun mic. I'm going to turn around, close my eyes, or leave the room Pick any mic you want, put it anywhere. I don't want to know where it is. I don't want to know what it is and just make it sound nasty. And so that's kind nice. of a fun thing to do with your assistant and say, okay, man, do something. Have but, fun. but I do feel like, uh, and then afterwards when it does sound good, good Lord, please take a photograph of it. Yeah. So we remember where it was. Yes. <laughs> yes. Remember it. Good, good point. Good point. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, let's take a break for just a sec. We'll come back in for the jam session. Rockstar is a reminder that we've got links to all the stuff we're talking about here with Justin Corky Cordell U um, <laughs> in the show notes. So just click through on your mobile device or go to rsrockstars.com and find the blog article right there. And then, it, and then in the bottom, usually we have links to stuff. That's sometimes where we'll include, uh, that's always where we include the YouTube playlist. So we've got a a playlist ready for you to just go click through and listen to all Justin's work. And then also we'll have links to his website. Sometimes we throw extra photos in there and diagrams if we, if we uh, remember to do so. So we'll see you guys in just a minute for the jam session. It was 1971 in a New York City basement when Eventide revolutionized the audio world by introducing the world's first studio effects processor, the Instant Phaser, and the first digital effect, the H910 Harmonizer. Eventide soon followed with the Instant Flanger, Omnipressor, SP2016 Reverb, and H949 and H3000 Harmonizers, which have been favorites of A-list mixers like Michael Brower, Joe Ciccarelli, Mick Kozowski, and Dave 
Cansado and heard on countless hit records over the decades. Today, Eventide brings all that sound to your stage and studio with modern solutions like the H9000 Harmonizer, their complete line of guitar pedals, including the versatile H9 Max, and transformative plugins like Micropitch, Physion, Black Hole, and Mangled Reverb. Take your next mix in your studio to a whole new level. Go to eventide.com or click the link in the show notes below. Are you sick of bothering family and neighbors when you're just trying to rehearse or record your music? Do outside noises or computer fans get into your studio mics and ruin your recordings? You could book a pro studio to record every time, but that would add up quickly, and doing permanent construction to soundproof your studio can easily cost up to $100,000 or more. Trust me, I know. And you can't take that with you when you eventually move the studio. Don't you wish there was an easy solution right now? Quisproom Isobooths offers a simple way to install a comfortable, quiet, ventilated isobooth in your studio with easy line of sight for recording vocals, guitar amps, or even drums in a variety of sizes. For 30 years, Whisproom has been solving studio isolation needs worldwide with isobooths that are shippable, portable, and can be assembled in an afternoon. Now you can get pro vocal recordings right in your home studio, practice whenever you want, and start using real guitar amps again. Get 10% off the 4x4 or 4x6 booths when you mention Recording Studio Rockstars at whisperroom.com or click the link in the show notes below. Are you using a Mac in your recording studio? Are you tired of feeling like the studio setup you worked so hard to create is becoming obsolete too quickly? Wouldn't it feel great to have a trusted friend to help you keep your existing Mac and studio setup current and relevant so that you can focus on the thing you love most, which is making great music? Well, now you can rely on OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, whose mission it is to help you get the most mileage out of your Mac. Whether you need to upgrade your RAM, install an SSD, add more connectivity, or simply find a great used Mac that's ready to rock, OWC will help take your studio far into the future with a vast library of DIY install videos, 24-7 friendly support, and free shipping in the U.S. on most items over $49. Why get frustrated and ditch your existing computer when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. Hey, Rockstars, we're back now for the jam session. My guest is Justin Corky Cordelieu, joining us here at the Toy Box to talk about making some badass records. We're going to get into a bunch of mixing questions here, too. Awesome. But first, let me go um, to ask you, uh, well, first I'll ask you, are you ready to jam, dude? Oh, I'm ready to jam. All Let's right, bring sweet. it on. Sweet. So uh, tell us about this working with Johnny Depp. The Hollywood Vampires. What is Hollywood Vampires? So the Hollywood Vampires uh, was actually originally a drinking club uh, that Alice Cooper started. And it, it took place at the, um, I believe it was the Whiskey. It was on the Sunset Strip in the, this would have been the, the 70s. You know, so it was like Mickey Dolan's and uh, 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 Harry Nielsen and uh, Keith Moon and, you know, uh uh, I think John Lennon was in it. Like all these amazing artists, they would just go into this secret room and it was later than they were supposed to be open. They would just sit and drink and have a good time. And so Alice had this, I guess he had met Johnny on the set of Dark Shadows and they were talking and, and 
got to be really good friends and they decided to make this band called the Hollywood Vampires. And That's Alice awesome. had this idea to do a covers record and it would be an ode to his quote unquote dead drunk friends. And <laughs> And wow. so that's what we, that was the starting point. And then Bob Ezrin was the producer and, uh, and it started off kind of small. We did one tracking session uh, out at the village recorder in LA, which was pretty amazing. And uh, yeah, it was uh, a lot of his live band and then Johnny Depp playing. And, and then it kind of, snowballed into this thing where we we got you know we, we were doing these sessions these overdub sessions at johnny depp's house and which was awesome one of his yeah, houses no doubt dude. he has all the and houses this on. is when you were living in la but. no this is i was living here this is in uh would have been like 2000 2014 or oh, so working with bob ezrin already yes. and this was sort of how that came all about yeah so this and i had already been working with bob for for several years and we don't we had done a few alice cooper Let's also that. pause and inject this little story. The first time I met you was actually when you were maybe had just kind of started doing stuff with Bob Ezrin. Yes. And and I was selling my Neve 1079 <laughs> right, yeah. and I needed, <laughs> uh, you know, I sold that in the rack and that was enough to make, you know, get me through a month or two or something like that. Yeah. And, and it got, uh, maybe it was on Craigslist and you found it. Yeah, that's Bob, right. There you were being a great helper. Yeah, I was being a great like, helper. I found you a great ice bucket and a 1079, yeah. 1079 vintage. <laughs> well, it's still being used. And that that Mike Pre has been used on, you know, Brian Johnson, Kesha, you know, you name it. Oh, that's so, awesome. That uh, makes yeah. me so much. That makes me really happy. <laughs> I don't think I was going to record Kesha here through it uh, when it was in my studio. So. Yeah, uh, we we had to clean it up afterwards, but put uh, <laughs> up anyway. So um, uh, yeah, so so we we were doing overdubs at at Johnny Depp's place, which was incredible. And uh, so Johnny owns a bunch of different houses on the block. And that's kind of his sanctuary, you know, uh, so he doesn't get He just bombarded. bought the whole cul-de-sac. Yeah. Yeah. You know, pretty much. And and they're all like super cool buildings. And Does he really go trim all the bushes with Edward Scissors hands on? Yep. Yep. That's him. Sweet. Yeah. Man. He kept those. Uh, so anyway, Joe Perry was just staying in one of his, you know, guest houses. And uh, and so we'd be recording and, and Joe would just come in and, you know, shirtless- and just lay on the couch and hang out. He'd be like, "Hey, Joe Perry, <laughs> what are you doing today?" And and so eventually he started playing on you know some of the songs, which was awesome. And then made a phone call and oh, and and then we'd be there and and he, Johnny and Marilyn Manson are big. They're really close friends, been friends for years. So so he came over and he sang on a song and that was incredible. And did he come dressed? Were these guys dressed in full regalia when you would record too? Ah, uh, I wish. No, I wish not always. No. Sometimes. Yeah. Uh, Joe Perry pretty much just looks like just Joe. Just looks like Joe. Yeah, yeah. He's he's Joe. Um but uh, I'm trying to think who else. Uh, we had Joe Walsh come in, which was amazing. Right on. He, he was incredible. Um, and and so it would just be these things where- And he sang or played guitar? He just played guitar. 
And oh man, it was, what was that like? It didn't just play guitar. Well, here's the crazy thing. So here's Joe Walsh, one of the greatest guitarists of, of all time. And he, the first guitar he pulls out is a V to Fernandez, a Fernandez V. Like, I mean, it just, to me, it looked like the cheapest guitar ever. I'm like, are you kidding? We're at Johnny's place and he's got like the best of the best collector's edition anything you want, like just hanging on the walls. The place is covered in guitars. And I'm like, grab any of these and it's going to be better. It's like, no, this is great. And he plays and the tone is incredible. Like it's just, it's him, you know? And then he gets to another song and and he he brings out this like cheap uh, Mexican made Strat. I'm like, oh, come on, man. That's hilarious. (laughs) whatever and and it's it. again the best thing you've ever heard and so it's all like all of the tone all of the uh the texture and 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 finesse is all in his fingers what and about just, the amp were you still using cool amps or was there anything about the miking and recording that you remember it it honestly was what was set up and i think it was a morgan amp because that's what joe was using uh joe perry and uh I think an SM7 on the cab. SM7 I, on the I cab. I love the SM7 on the cab. Oh, if you that's great. Good it's, tip. Oh, no. it's fantastic. I don't think I've put an SM7 on a guitar cab in ages. Yeah, that's kind of what I I always do that. I, I put the the SM7 on uh, just off of the surround, and I'll I'll do a, a like a Royer 121 or 122 closer to the cone, and kind of blend the two and sum them together because I hate those extra tracks like we were talking about. So SM7, when you say closer to the surround, you mean like the the little the edge of the speaker itself? Yes. Yeah, the edge of the speaker. It's a little little warmer. Um yeah. and then and then because the Royer, and this is just my thinking, this isn't gospel or anything, but you know, the the 121 or 122, uh, because it's a little bit darker, it can take a little bit more of the kind of high-end presence that comes closer to the yeah, uh, totally. to the cone. Yeah, so because an SM57 can get a little bit bright when you get close to the middle. Yeah, so uh, that's just kind of been my standard setup. Like that's my starting point uh, ever since, and I, I just really like it. And then usually I'm I'm on a in town. We have a lot of uh, SSL 9000s. The new studio that uh, that we've built has a 4000E, mm-hmm. so it's great because I can uh, take the small faders and kind of do my blend. On the fly, and then I bust it out to one, just one channel, one and just track. record yeah, one track because I do yeah. not like having more tracks. Me neither. Me uh, neither. Just simplify and be that's, done with it. That's what I do too here with the MCI console, which, oh. by the way, has also recorded Joe Walsh. What do you know? Yeah, the, the smoker you get that album. <laughs> oh, that's I think awesome. He did that. Just came down from Criteria, and of course, it recorded Joe Walsh on on uh, uh, Hotel California. <gasps> that board did Hotel California for the Eagles down oh, at Studio C. That's that's but, stupid. So, so my my but my point is that I will do the same thing if I can. I'll take multiple mics and I'll run them through a couple of faders, just get the blend at the console, yeah. and then record that to one track because it's a cool sound too. Yeah, know, yeah, and and when you when you get the sound you like, you know, why chase that? Yeah, why want to, Why would you want to go fuck it up later? Yeah, exactly. So especially if it's going to someone else to mix, you know, just don't give them the option to fuck it up. Yeah, good <laughs> point. Know? So um, anyway, that's, uh, I, I think it was just an F- SM7 on his, uh, on that, on that rig. Anyway. Yeah, it doesn't matter if it was or wasn't. That was a great takeaway tip Man, to use an SM7 now. Yeah, well, well, there you go. We'll and, be trying it. 
Yeah. And, you know, with Joe Walsh, I mean, really, you could mic it with a shoelace and a piece of gum and it would sound great. You know, <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> shoelace and a piece of gum. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's my next tip. Try a shoelace and a piece of gum into a, into a neave. And that's. Now, does the gum go first or the shoelace go first? That's yeah, try out and see what sounds good. <laughs> um, cool. So Johnny Depp, what a trip. And so what was he doing in the project? Was he singing on stuff as well? Uh, on this record, he just, just played guitar and, played guitar. and he's a, he's a pretty decent guitar player. Uh, kind of has a slinky, bluesy kind of uh, like Keith Richards style, uh, and such a cool guy. I mean, just he just wants to be around music all the time. That's great. And and like you know, he's he's seemed a little shy for. I think he was just kind of guarded at first until you kind of enter that circle of trust, and then he was just so cool to hang out with, and such a like I I. I could not find a bad thing to say about him. How yeah, long were you there working on it? Uh, I mean, it was, this all took place, I think over the course of a year or a year and a half. So it would be like, you know, a weekend here, or, you know, five days here and five days there. And, uh, and we did, uh, I wasn't there for Robbie Krieger or um, Dave Grohl, which kills me. <laughs> yeah. That would have been would so feel cool. Oh man. But, I can't wait to meet Dave one day. Oh man, that would be awesome. I've heard he's a great guy I'm too. I'm sure he's a super genuine dude. Yeah, and what a talent, man. But uh yeah, so that was awesome. So they flew me in for uh vocals for Perry Farrell. He ended up or as they call him peripheral. Perry Farrell from Jane's Addiction. <laughs> yes, yes. Nice. Uh which was incredible. I mean, that guy. Did you have to do like the required delay thing, the Jane's addiction effect? Yeah, it was on there. It was on there. Just well, I what, didn't print what, it. What, what is that effect? It's like delay. Or yeah. Something oh, like I that. just put a delay, like an Echo Boy delay, on there, and uh, I, I can't. Re- I don't know what the what the repeats were, but you know, just I just threw something up real quick. Right. Uh, but he was a total rock star. First of all, he showed up seven hours late. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just sitting there going, because like, I, I flew in, I took the morning flight, I was taking the red eye back because I had just moved and uh, and my son was, you know, really young and uh, and so I just couldn't get away. My whole family was painting the inside of the house and I was the one jerk who had to leave and, you know, and go record Perry Farrell. Right, <laughs> you know? right. They don't know who he is. So, uh, but, but me, I was so excited because that, I mean, he was so cool. And man, he was a rock star. Talk about a rock star. Like he, we had an SM7 on his vocal and he just like picked up the microphone and this is in the studio and, and he was spinning around. He was jumping. He was doing, it was like he was on stage That's and it was awesome. the best thing ever. And I, I was only there for like to get the sound and the levels and stuff. And we did like two passes or so. I was like, all right guys, I got to go. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was that was incredible. But the best day was, uh, was when Paul McCartney came. That was like, first of all, so I woke up to a text that said, congratulations, Jared Neiman's song just hit number one. It was either number one or it was platinum. One of the two, both like, it was number one. It was, he was the number one. Amazing, so I woke man. up, I was in the hotel room. I was like, that's incredible. I, Blown away. And then I took a shower, got dressed, and walked up to Johnny Depp's house to set up for Paul McCartney. And 
I mean, just saying that sentence is just weird and doesn't seem like it should have happened, but it did. And, uh, and yeah, so it was Abel Boreal Jr. on drums. Paul McCartney went down with the scratch vocal and piano. It was like there was a shitty upright piano, and uh, and the only mic left was uh, was a PZM, just mono PZM. So put that in, in there and close the top, uh, which it was a little difficult to get. You can't get a oh, good sound. Oh, this is sound. doing the closed lid piano thing. Yeah, so yeah. So that did you tape the PZM to the inside of the lid and close the lid? Is it like that? Uh, Do you remember I, how you did that? I can't remember exactly, but I want to say it was it wasn't to the lid, but it was there was some space above the uh, the, the sound bar. I and think. so it's like resting on it was on t- the it was taped itself, in there. Taped. It, I don't think it, was, it wasn't to the harp itself, but it was. Uh, so maybe it was the lid. Because um, I've yeah. tried experimenting with stuff like that, and I, and I, you can tape PZMs to a grand piano lid and then just close the lid and you can get some isolation. Right. If there's a drum kit in there or anything, but it's always tricky to figure out how to tape them and stuff like that. Yeah, and this was like, it, this whole thing, it just happened to be that he was in town and he was at a break for rehearsals because he was he was playing a show or maybe he was just rehearsing for his tour or something, but he happened to have a day and so it was like everyone scurrying around. And so a lot of it's a blur and a lot of it was stuff was already set up and let's just use that because we don't have any time to waste right, with Paul right, McCartney. Right, totally. It's working. We'll make it sound good later. Yeah. And and so that was just, let's plug it in and let's figure it out later, you know? And, uh, and it was, like I said, totally renegade uh, style. We used up every mic pre- that we had there, but the band on the floor was Abe and Paul was playing guitar or playing piano and singing. And then Joe Perry was playing guitar. Uh, Johnny Depp was playing guitar. Alice Cooper was singing background vocals. So now (laughs) did you get a sense from the musicians themselves on the floor that there was, was there like a sense that Paul was, you know, that they were thrilled to be playing with Paul or was it, did it feel like a very even playing field amongst all those folks? Or like, what was the, did you pick up on that kind of vibe at all? Well, uh, I mean, if I was in that room, I'd just been like, you know, like, I'm not worthy. Yeah. There was there, of course. Like everyone, when they were playing, it was fine. They were just figuring out the parts and stuff. But I remember walking through, I was, so the studio is in what would have been that that house's garage. So just kind of treated and everything. And so you come out of the, you know, the garage through the kitchen, through a little bar area and into the living room, which is the control room. Uh, and so I passed by Johnny in the bar area and he goes, dude, can you believe it? Paul McCartney's here at my house. <laughs> like, so awesome. Yeah. I'm at your house. And Paul McCartney, like, <laughs> like he was just as like blown away as I was. And he, you know, I'm like, I grew up in a, you know, coal mining town in Western Pennsylvania, you know, like that's I so awesome. Couldn't believe that I was in the same room as all of these people. It was, it was just unbelievable. Um, and that was really one of the only sessions where I got a little bit starstruck, you know, uh, because I mean, it's Paul McCartney. He invented music. You what, know? what were some of the things you remember just listening to them play together about 
the musicianship that was happening right there? Um, it was. Did anything strike you? Abel Boyle Jr. was uh, just, he he was so musical and he really helped to uh, communicate ideas between all of the musicians and stuff. And right. So he sort of became de facto band director in a way, right? And, And then Paul's used to playing with Abe. Yeah. So he's comfortable in the pocket and the groove. And, and Paul they, had the song? Yeah, so so the song was Come and Get It. Oh, which, yeah, just listen to that one. Yeah, which, which Paul had written to be on a Beatles record. He wanted it to be on a Beatles record, but it never made it. And so he, uh, then Badfinger used it, and I think it was a number one for Badfinger. That's right, that's right. And, and he had never got, he never and recorded Badfinger it. Badfinger was on Apple Records. You're right, right. And and so he and never, that's not Apple computers, Rockstars. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up. Yeah. So um, so he'd always wanted to record it. So this was kind of like Paul's, you know, not dream. I mean, he has, but he wanted to do it so badly. So you know, here was his opportunity, and and it was so. Just this so was cool. like one of the first times that Paul recorded "Come and Get It." I think no. so. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because I remember the song, and I thought I knew it was his, but. I had forgotten that it was Badfinger is why I knew it. Yeah. What so trip, yeah. Um, do your history. I mean, do your homework, Lidge. Yeah. Well, uh, I haven't looked into it, so maybe I'm wrong, but I, I think that's the first time. But you time got a that sense he, that they were excited about the chance. Yeah, to that's what I was told yeah. was that. Yeah. that well, this somebody was his will first correct time. us, and our rock stars always feel free to drop a comment in somewhere and send yes. us straight. Yes. So anyway, that, it was incredible. And so they, you know, did several rehearsals, you know, passes, and uh, and then then we did some vocals after that, and that was amazing. So, uh, you know, Bob Ezrin was actually in the room with him, kind of, you know, giving him ideas, like sitting next to him with headphones on. Bob's very hands-on, and uh, and so he he just sang a few passes down, and it was and it was Paul McCartney. Come on, <laughs> it was pretty yeah. incredible, and. And then after he did his main pass, he said, "You know what? I want to do, I want to do a mad guy, and uh, and just have him scream the whole song." And so, you know, in um, in "Oh Darling," when he's like really screaming, yeah, like it was that voice wow. throughout the whole song in a different. Um, you, you'll hear it on the recording, uh, a, a different. Um, kind of a different style, a different, he's not matching his original vocal at all, like the yeah. phrasing and all of that. So it kind of offset. And he's, I think he's panned off to the left or something. That's what I wanted to ask you about is one of my questions was on a session like that with so many different voices going on. How did you make decisions? I guess you already told us that the mics you were using were probably like the mics you had. Right. So you didn't, you didn't maybe you didn't overthink that, but what about the placement, you know, because they're panned out and they have different qualities to them and they some sit forward, some sit back, stuff like that. So when when I'm mixing, especially vocals, uh, but really, really anything, you know, you kind of get your your bed, uh, you know, like bass and guitar and um and drums and everything. And then if if you have like I always try to pan equal and opposite energies uh away from each other. So you sort of have this stereo image that kind of moves, and it, it's it's a little more exciting. Um, 
you know, like if you have a hi hat pan slightly to the left, then do your shaker slightly to the right. Or you know, if you, if you have a guitar that's doing an arpeggio and you have a synth doing an arpeggio part or something like that, then pan those you know separately. But then you do also um, on the opposite end sometimes make decisions about like these two instruments together are a part, so I'm going to pan them together. Yeah, sometimes yeah, if they make a part, or if it's like. If it's a solo acoustic and a vocal, and it's a singer-songwriter thing, and they should be married, even if it, if the singer didn't play acoustic, but maybe they should be married, and so they'll be together in the middle, or you know whatever. Now, now when you, I know we're jumping all over, but when you do that solo acoustic and vocal thing, I know one of the challenges sometimes is could if it's if that's all you've got is trying not to feel like, well, is this just going to be one big mono? Um, yeah. So, but if you do the stereo miking for acoustic. Is that right. something that you will rely on to have a single acoustic and a single vocal still come from the middle, but not feel quite totally 100% mono? Well, you know, that's always a trick. And and honestly, sorry, Bill, but I typically do uh, when I record acoustic, cause, because the what I'm recording is typically not bluegrass and not for like a hi-fi, you know, acoustic part. I usually do two mics I, as close as I can get them together. So they're going to be in phase. And I usually do a high fi and a low fi. So I'll do like a C12 and a 57 or a C12 and a ribbon or, you know, something that's going to kind of fill in the gaps, you know, a 67 and, you know, a 421 or something like that, you know, something to, uh, so that I can blend in more or less of the high end. And I, and yeah. I won't commit that just because I know later on in the mix, I might, you know, if I, if we add a bunch of stuff, I might need more of that lo-fi sound to make it kind of come through. And your high-fi, lo-fi technique, um, do you do that as the two spaced-out stereo mics? Or do no, you do they're, that as like, they're like right next to, to each other? Right next to each other so that like they're pointing at the same exact spot. Yeah, I like that trick a lot. In fact, I learned that from Richard Dodd on the oh. show. And then um, he was describing Mike and Tom Petty's guitars that mm. way. And so, so then I went and shot a video. So on, on my YouTube channel, I have a video called the, the Tom Petty acoustic trick. That's and, well, uh, I and when I did it and tried it, I was like, Oh my God, that sounds great. But I, uh, but in that instance, I didn't do hi-fi, lo-fi. I just did like a large diaphragm, small diaphragm. So it was more right. like you get an EQ blend, oh, but I cool. have done that with the 57, which was the next step, which right. was like maybe a, um, I did a U67 and a 57 and it really does. It gives you that, like you've got that, the 57 gives you the hard rock and roll acoustic guitar yes. and the U67 gives you the big, beautiful, warm yeah. kind of thing. So that you can just kind of mix and match. Yeah. And yeah. And it, it just, it, a lot of times that depends on the mix. So, you know, if, if you're, if you're having a dense mix, you know, maybe the, the 67 comes out a little too much like a shaker. Because you've you've had that kind of shaker acoustic right, where you where can't tell the what pick the, on the strings going yeah, and you can't yeah. hear any of the body, yeah. you know. So that fifty seven kind of helps to uh, to bring out the body, and so you can actually hear a pitch and some tone um, without having to reach for the EQ and do some something drastic. Uh, but as far as like going back to the uh, to the Paul McCartney Mad Guy vocal, um, just panning it around because so once you get your bed. If you have a, uh, an element, kind of an extra element that's not paired with anything else, if you, I, I typically just will set it at the same volume and just pan it left and right, and there will you'll find a hole where you can hear it better. 
you go, oh, okay, well, there it's not being masked by something else. So uh, that's that's really, you know, there's no science to it other than just like, where where does this fit? <laughs> you know, you just kind of pan it around. You right. Go, oh, so you, it'll you're pop not out like hardcore spot. left, center, right, uh, you know, that not so much. LCR I'll, mixing necessarily. I'll do before, I, honestly, before I, I started working with Bob, I was, because that's what Mike Shipley was. He was LCR, everything LCR. Um, and I mean, his mixes are just ridiculous. Uh, he was, he was amazing. Um, but then working with Bob, he was much more, uh, he likes a, a, a less wide image. Um, I think it's, it might be, you know, time period kind of thing. Like right. you know, things wide, especially if they poke out, uh, really bother him. So he likes, he likes to have a concise mix that's, you know, a lot closer. Uh, and, and so I got into, you know, uh, non LCR mixing, uh, because of Bob. So I can go both ways. Well, let's, let's actually jump to talking about some more mixing stuff. Now, mm -hmm. um, Jared Neiman drink to that all night was a, your number one platinum yes. selling single. Congrats on that. Oh, thank you. Thank um, you. tell us what your involvement was in that project. And then, uh, and I believe you mixed that as well, right? Yes. So in the mixing stage, talk about some of the tricks that go into, cause that's a very modern upfront voice yes. kind of sound. So talk about some of the mixing tricks and techniques that help us bring a voice totally forward in a mix where it's net, where we're never going like, I can't hear it. You know? Right. Yeah. That's, and that's a lot of, you know, a lot of country music is, is like that. Uh, and, you know, I think there's some auto-tune stuff tricks going in. Yes. On there too. Yeah. So the first, I think in the verses, there's like an auto-tune thing. And what I, it's actually not auto-tune. Um, I, I did it in Melodyne and just kind of flatlined it. And then I also dropped it in octave to give it a kind of a vocodery oh, effect. Oh, cool. Cool. Um, I, I, I do that a good bit and it's, Actually works really well. The in rap. octave drop just yeah. thickens up a, a vocal. Yeah, and it kind of has this, especially if you mess with the format. So if you if you drop it an octave and flatline it, and then mess with the format a little bit in in Melodyne, you could really come up with some cool effects. And you can build a whole, you know, kind of Imogen Heap style vocal section like that. Just Manipulating. It's interesting. You just brought up Imogen Heap too. Oh man, I I love it. Imogen Heap. She's she's a genius. Absolute. Genius. Have you followed? This is an aside, but um, have you followed uh, um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies? And have you learned that Imogen Heap was one of the number one voices for music interfacing yes. with that new technology? Yes. She. Uh, yeah. The uh, blockchain. Yeah. The whole blockchain thing, which I think is genius. I mean, try to find credits. <laughs> like I was just just the other day trying to figure out who who mixed something and and produced something, and the artist didn't list it on all music. There was no credits other than the performers. Yeah, and I maybe mean, maybe it wasn't the artist. It could have been probably was the label. Um, but why would you not credit the creators? And how, why is it so difficult? It doesn't come on iTunes. It doesn't come on Spotify. A title might have it. I'm not sure. Yeah. But uh, it's so hard to find credits for stuff that you've worked on or other people have worked on. Yeah, I agree. So I think having that 
and also for songwriting purposes and 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 money where money should be properly yep, dispersed. Yep, yep. Uh, I think that's genius. All right. So that, that is a, that is a rabbit hole. We can go down yeah. another time, but <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, maybe we'll, maybe who knows, maybe we'll have a podcast and we'll, we'll get deep into all that stuff. Yeah. At some point. Yeah. Uh, but so uh, backing up, oh my goodness, where were we? Oh yeah. Jared's vocals. Yes. Um, and the, the, oh, Melodyne. So that's Melodyne. what I wanted to ask you about. So the Melodyne stuff, when you're tuning with Melodyne, cause it's a tool that I use a lot too. Yeah. I love it. Um, and now I'm using auto-tune as well. And I, and I have in the past, I just recently actually got it. I, I need to get back into auto-tune also. Well, and just, that, it's great for those times where you're like, I really don't want to, I, you know, have to manually do everything. Yeah. But, yeah. But when you're working with Melodyne, um, what, what's the technique that, or what's the method that allows you to feel like you can work quickly? Do you move all your vocals over to the Melodyne app and work in that and then bring them back? Or do you use it as plugins on individual tracks? You know, I I used to, and I, I actually personally think this is faster, um, but I haven't done it like this in a, in a while since Melodyne 4. Um, in Melodyne 3, I used to use the, whatever that transfer app was. And yeah, transfer, Bridge, I think. Yeah, Melodyne yeah. Bridge, yeah. And, and transfer that over to the standalone, and then I would work in Melodyne and then print that back. And that was great. I like that because usually when I'm tuning, I'll, I'll know the key. And uh, I think, you know, playing trombone and just tuning a lot of vocals. Yeah. I don't need the... Do you remember there being a trick for printing it back? Because I remember it was like you had to like make a second track and then record that track over to that track and then pull it back in. And it got all kind of challenging yeah. at times. Yeah, I think I would just... What I would do is uh, I'd always have my Melodyne... I still do this even with plugging, even though I know it's probably not the best way to do it. But I would make a a bunch of new tracks and I would copy my comp up to those tracks, use those to send to Melodyne and then print back to the master on a uh, on a playlist so that I would always have the comp, the untuned comp in a playlist below it and I'd have the tuned Melodyne track. Yeah, that's pretty so, smart. So uh, that's what I would do. And that way, even if I accidentally forgot to create a new playlist, I'd still have the comp in a separate track and I just hide and make those inactive. Right. So, um, and that's smart because then if you're working in your session in Pro Tools, you can flip over to Melodyne and just work on vocals for a minute. But if you go back to Pro Tools and press play somewhere, you're yeah. going to hear that thing you just did in the context of the mix to see if you like it or not. Yeah. Yeah. And I would definitely do that for for when I do my, because uh, I do pitch and timing and make sure I, I, I wouldn't have any other plugins going so I wouldn't have you know, latency and, and all that. But uh, I would get my, I do my pitch first and then I would do my timing on the lead vocal and I would time all of the background vocals pretty much in the standalone. Lock, lock yeah. with, with the lead. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that that's how I would use Melodyne. And generally I, I, like I'll go through and I'll kind of chop up, since it works on averages, uh, I'll do a lot of chopping and separating the quote unquote blobs uh, right, right. W- where, you know, if there's a little, little nuance where maybe a vibrato goes a little bit too high, or if, if it connects uh, kind of a slur from one note to another, you know, make sure that I, I make a bunch of different uh, separate blobs so that I'm not, and also, so I'm not tuning breaths because that gets a weird right, right. tone. Um, so I'm, I'm typically going for a transparent, right. natural sounding tune. So I'll only use the pitch drift. Uh, maybe I'll use the pitch, manip- uh, pitch 
uh, the, 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 the pitch adjust or whatever it's yeah, called. So the, you can bring the vibrato. Right. Modulation, the pitch line. modulation. Yeah, I can bring that yeah. closer in if I need to, but you can kind of start hearing that pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I spent a lot of time in, in Do Melanide. you find it's easier to get away with the um, lengthening of, and shortening of notes and not hear it than it is to get away with uh, manipulating the pitch too much? Uh, I think you can do... It, it depends on the voice also. Some voices like uh, like Andrea Bocelli, for whatever reason, you touch his... Not that he needs really much tuning at all. Every Maybe every now and then there's a syllable or something. But if you just touch it with Melodyne, I, it it makes a, a sound with him. I don't know what it is, but it 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 just doesn't work. But auto tune works. Interesting, him. yeah, yeah. But well, just a very little little bit. It is one of those good reminders that there's different tools out there, and some just like different compressors. Yes, they all sound a little different. So yeah. they, they can be good reasons to have all these tools. So yeah, you can so go with the one that works for that that. Use case. Also, yeah. if there's reverb in the room, if there's a little yes. bit of natural echo, that tends to be something that you can hear the effects on. Absolutely. You, know, you want to try and turn it off for the, that part for the, the tails of things, <laughs> yeah. potentially. Yeah. Yeah. And so I actually have hotkeys set up. And uh, so I can quickly hit, like, if I hit M, it resets the pitch, pitch modulation. P does the overall pitch. D does the pitch drift. T does the timing. So I can always get back within a button push. Are those all just hotkeys you set up inside Melodyne? Or yeah. Did you? Yeah. If you go into okay, your preferences, cool. you can go and set those up and, uh, and it just makes it a lot faster. Uh, but now I'm, wor- I'm working in Melodyne for uh, the plugin and then that's, that's great. And I do it the same exact way just because. Cool. All right. So once you've got your vocal tuned mm-hmm. and you're back in the mix mode, what about some cool tricks about how to make sure that vocal sounds great? Um, is clip gain an important part of the process? Uh, do you manually mess with uh, sibilance? Um, right. You right. know, do or do we get into parallel processing things like that? So I I personally haven't done any parallel par- processing on vocals. I've tried it, but I haven't ever quite gotten it to where I like it. Um, I will do a little bit of click gain if 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 I need it. If there's like one word that's just jumping out, you know, then I'll I'll, I'll pull it down in the uh, uh, on the waveform. But uh, generally speaking, I start off with the MDW EQ, and I go and I find any of offensive frequencies, and and that's a great plugin because you can hit. First of all, it's George Massenberg, and he's a genius. Uh, second, if you hit uh, the little number, there's a little color number uh by each frequency um you know each each band and so if you hit that it'll instantly give you a a i think it raises it by like 12 db with a tight q so you can sweep and find those frequencies that like take your head off or right, right. really make it you know kind of yeah. you know uh muffled so uh and this is called mdw mdw eq um nice. Yeah, so you can sweep and and if you can't get because it's it's not cheap, it's like five hundred bucks or something like that. But you can get it on a, a few different platforms. You can get it, uh, you know, as a like a native uh, or DSP uh, AAX plugin, or I think they make VST. But it but sounds really good too. Yeah, it sounds amazing. But also um, UAD does one, uh, so you could get it through UAD if if you so desire. But um, I think he designed the EQ three 
also. And I've had a friend who- That's just built into- It's built in. It's a little more cumbersome. Yeah. Yeah. So it's free. It sounds great. Uh, Shipley, when I worked with Mike Shipley, he used that all the time. So he would just carve stuff out with that. But you take it, you need a few extra steps. Uh, So it depends on if you can afford it. If you can't afford the MDW, check out the EQ3. It's- Digi-rack, it's awesome. Yep. Um, so anyway, I'll go through and I'll do, you know, the filter out the low end if if I need to find the, I'll do all my subtractive EQ to get the kind of nasty anomalies and I'll listen quiet, I'll listen loud to see what, uh, what sticks out. And sometimes I'll automate or I'll add a second instance and automate a bypass if there's a section that gets, you know, abrasive. Right. Um, and then after that, I'll do... Uh, like typically I'll do a, an 1176, uh, I use the UAD, uh, like the revision F, uh, blackface compressor. Um, and I'll do like a 20 to one with a, uh, a faster attack and a fast release. And that'll kind of get it leveled out a little bit. And then I'll put a, an LA-2A after that. And, uh, I just like the sound of, of those two together. It's kind of a great sound it, it, it's a big vocal and i've also been uh switching out that with the l ray the the greg wells ba6a uh i think he has a ba6b but whatever it is it's just it's a big fire it makes everything huge and when i worked with mike shipley again he had gotten uh an rca ba6a and he was running all his vocals through it it was just gorgeous it's made everything sound so big so um, we actually purchased, that was the first purchase we made for the new studio that we just built. Uh, you got an actual one of those? Yeah. yeah. Nice. And it's, oh man, we call it the beast because it's just. So the 1176 and the LA2A, do you like to use hardware for those or you use UAD plugins? Or uh, UAD plugins sound great. So um, yeah, now uh, this, I just started mixing in the new studio. Uh, we're calling it uh, Soul Train Sound Studios. Um so my actual real signal chain is a revision D uh, 1176 through the beast, through the BA6A. And then I go through a pool tech uh, for a little bit of top end. Nice. Uh, you know, just nice air and, yeah. and stuff. And then I'll, I could, I'll commit it if I, if I like it. And then, you know, add a little bit of sizzle through like, uh, I love the slate digital air plugin. Mm-hmm. Uh, on in the virtual rack, that, that thing's great. Uh, or the ma- the mag or mog or however you say that, uh, they have a nice air band. Um, but yeah, uh, a lot of it, well, it now. Let's talk about your monitors too. I noticed that you in your photo, you it looks like maybe you have barefoots in your studio. Is there a monitor that you enjoy mixing on? And have you also noticed that some monitors are more challenging to hear the air band when you're mm-hmm. using the EQ and other ones, it's very obvious to that it's there. Yeah. So, um, so th- that was an older full photo. I, th- that was a, at Bob Ezrin studio that that's at, at Anarchy. And, uh, and it was it, the barefoots are very room dependent. And if, if it doesn't work in the room, it's, it's tough. Uh, at least that's what I found. So I didn't really, like that. I would check it because they got loud. Um, but I wasn't a big fan of those. Uh, but during the Jared Neiman sessions, I was mixing drink to that all night. And so I mixed that on a pair of Adams, uh, 
uh, was the A6s, I think, uh, and a KRK sub. And, you know, it came out great. I was really happy with it. But I noticed that it was significantly different in other spots where I listened. And and it, I think it was the room. Those monitors did not fit the room. And so I, I went over and saw Chad Evans, and, uh, and he let me borrow a pair of PMCs. So Chad Evans now has Westlake, Westlake Pro in Nashville, Pro in Nashville which yeah. is right over in Berry Hill. And I just went in there for the first time, and it is like you just your jaw hits the floor. <laughs> you know, Chad is has always created environments like that here in Nashville. So yeah, Rockstars, if you're ever in Nashville and you want to really experience and see what Pro Audio looks like, find Chad. Yes, all the guys find over the there. Westlake space now. They're fantastic and. Any time that I have not taken his advice, <laughs> I've I've regretted it. He's he, he's he's an engineer, and all those guys who work there work as engineers and producers, players, and stuff. So they they get their hands on these things, so they actually know what they're talking about, which is amazing and so so precious. So at this point, I just go okay. Sure. So what did he direct or how did he guide the, you? He told me uh, PMC 226s. PMC 226s. Yeah. So I try to, they're not cheap, but I have never been let down. I've never been surprised by a mix. I take those and I ended up getting the sub too, the sub sub, or was it sub sub one or something like that? They have a, uh, a funny name for it. But, um, but those two paired together, oh, like you can hear everything. It's a seamless transition between the the near fields and the sub, um, and I, I I just don't guess. I don't even listen to other things. And this is in your new space, right? You're, you're well, talking about too, or not? We upped it in the new space, so that's what what I got when I was mixing the uh, drink to that all night. Okay, well we can we can stay there for a moment. Okay. So in that space, describe what that space was that you were mixing in. So that space, was this a home studio was this a, a this was design studio. This was a, a design studio. It was the sort of the C room at the ruckus room. Um, and it had a, uh, it was actually- a Is fun- that the room where um, Jamie put in the the Pro Tools? Yes. The D-Control and the big mixing interface? Yeah. So I was in there for a little while. Uh, Jimmy Lee Slos, he's a, a bass player and an amazing producer. He produced the, the High Noon uh, record. And so, yeah, it's- it's kind of a reconditioned space, but Gene Lawson uh, designed it, I think. And uh, he and Jamie, I'm sure. Uh, and it sounded yeah. great. I loved it. I love that space so much. And so, so Gene Lawson, Rockstars, he is a Nashville legend designer. Mm-hmm. He built the Lawson plates, re- reverbs. He built the Lawson microphones. Yeah. Um, very, very, um, I think of the Lawson microphone as having quite a lot of top end. It's a yeah. very like high- yeah, it's frequency mic almost, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And um anyway, but that room sounded great, but the monitors didn't quite fit it. And when I tried the P- PMC 226s, uh they just they worked. And everywhere I took it, it they they worked great. And so now in this new space, um with that being uh, in mind, so I actually I love them so much and took them everywhere that Bob Ezrin ended up buying the same set so the this uh the two two sixes and then the the sub and then uh Johnny Reed who owns uh Soul Train 
he bought the same setup also for his, for his place. So nice. yeah, we have three different sets of the two sets. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> and you're welcome. Uh, so then we thought, well, we need some mains for the new studio. So we ended up going big and we got the uh, PMC MB3s. And uh, they're the first set of main monitors that I can do a mix on. And it translates to, I, I've also got a pair of NS10 set up now. Yeah. So as you can see, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. still mixing on NS10s and I've certainly enjoyed using them for a long time, but I'm at that point where I'm like really can't wait to explore yeah. you know, moving up in the monitor world now. So part of my question was, uh, you know, going back to the air EQ yeah, on yeah. a vocal, do you feel like you could, you could make a, a good accurate judgment on where to set that with NS10s or is that one of those things where the higher end speakers uh, reproduce what you're trying to add in a way that makes it easy to make decisions? Uh, I think if I'm setting it, I would rather do it on the higher end speakers. So I, so if I err, I err on the side of caution instead of, you know, just getting a vocal that's just going to take your head off, you know? Uh, so I'll set it and then I'll, I always check on, you know, either NS10s or, uh, you know, Pro-X are great, that kind of, you know, flat frequency response. Uh, and uh, I see you have the uh, Avantone. Uh, yeah, I love the Avantone mix cube. Yeah. I'm not, I've, I want to get a second one so that I don't actually have to hit the mono button. Right. Just <laughs> right. put them on top of each other like Jamie does yeah, at the yeah. Ruckus Room. Um, but I really enjoy it, and I really like it for the ease at which it helps me balance my mixes and quit being distracted by all the shiny Absolutely. things, you know, of big speakers and volume and power and just yeah. like listen and go like, okay, can I hear if this was playing back on like a little clock radio in a bedroom? Yeah. Am I hearing the instruments, you know? Absolutely. And, and at Bob's place, he's got uh, just a little uh, iPod dock, you know, an old school, I think it's an Altec Lansing iPod dock. And that works great. It's just it serves that purpose where you can listen to something that's normal that's like that anyone will hear. I think Jamie uses an old set of Apple computer monitors, and I think he does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've know? started also. Um, I've got something called uh, Airfoil and Audio Hijack, which will let me. And I'm using something called the Mini DSP. I think that's what it's called. Hmm. It's a box that because I was looking for a way to get from the I have a Pro Tools HD system, so it's all mm -hmm. like Pro Tools. When you get into the high end stuff, it's very much like a a walled garden. You can't yeah. like <laughs> speak to the computer system audio anymore very yeah. easily, um, unless you use uh, core audio at, for your interface. So, not to get too tech with it, but they they do have light pipes on the on the output of the H, HD one ninety twos, and so I was able to. I wanted a box that would just do the light pipe. I didn't want to buy like a thousand dollar interface it's like i don't need more interface stuff i right. really just want to take those two light pipes and bring them back in and this little box would do that i'm uh, sorry i'm taking a long time to tell this but <laughs> that brings it into the computer then audio hijack can route it and airfoil will stream it over the same wi-fi network and you can pick it up on your phone or your ipad oh, or something like that awesome so then you can listen and it does some weirdo stuff too like it'll you can hear some Almost like tape speed changes as it's like changing its sample rate to accommodate the network or something. 
but it lets you I'm very quickly hear the audio playing off of your iPhone. That's awesome. While you're mixing. It's still a delay. Yeah. But it's not as bad as some of the tools I used to use, like NiceCast was one where you could, oh. you could send it over the internet. Yeah, I, I never did anything like that, but that would have been very Well, useful. I've never had a platinum number one selling records, oh. so maybe I don't need to be doing it. <laughs> well, uh, I have nothing to say. <laughs> there you go. You don't have to say anything. Oh, you can just right. sit back and cross your arms if you want. Want to record killer drums in your home studio? Then check out Rockstars of Drums to learn how to record, edit, and mix pro-sounding drums with a professional Nashville session drummer in a Grammy-winning studio. Or if you're ready to start mastering your own records at home, then check out Rockstars of Mastering, where I walk you through exactly how I mastered my own records, Skadoosh, using nothing but plugins in PreSona Studio One. And if mixing is your focus, then check out my free course, Mix Master Bundle, where I show you how to mix using stock and free plugins and Pro Tools. And the best part is these techniques would work for you in whichever DAW you're using right now. Plus, you get a look at how I recorded everything in my studio and multi-track downloads for you to practice mixing and even include in your mixing portfolio if you want. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to Mix Master Bundle to get started for free now or look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode. Um, all right, dig it. So other... Powerful, powerful vocalist that you've recorded and mixed. Uh, J.J. Shiplet. Oh, man. Um, and then also the uh, Andrea and uh, Matteo Bocelli. Yeah. Those stuff. Oh, man. Talk um, about vocalists. Yeah. What, 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 what lessons have you learned about uh, both recording and mixing like extremely powerful singers? How is that different from the stuff we're used to with the singer-songwriter with an acoustic guitar? It's way more challenging. Now, I didn't record either one of those vocals. Um, uh, Johnny Reed is another guy who's, I mean, his voice, he's, you know, he's uh, my, my partner with the new studio and everything, but he is one of the best vocalists. He's got this like Joe Cocker meets uh, Rod Stewart kind of voice. And so like with him, it's it's more controlled and it's just about, you could put anything in front of him and it's going to sound like him. And it's going to sound great. But then I did... When I was in LA, I recorded uh, Pat Monahan from Train, who had such a big voice. I mean, and it was it, it's it's on the uh, more um, focused upper mid range side, so uh, that was a lot more challenging. And especially when you only have an artist in there for a short period of time, don't try to get the best vocal sound ever and, and, you know, uh, get the hottest signal or anything. you want to get a clean, this is, this is my opinion, but you want to get a clean vocal that you can work with later on and not regret. Do you, you feel know? like, uh, so translation, maybe the singer doesn't care so much about triple compression right now while they're recording. Right. Maybe they just need it to sound. Yeah. Clean. I've actually had singers, um, you know, shoot me down because of compression. Right. They hear their voice is like, they're trying to add power and the power yeah. is not coming back. Yeah. Because yeah. the compressor's grabbing it. I've had some, some vocalists do that too. And, and so, you know, you can always ask and say, Hey, do you want some compression on it? A lot of, a lot of vocalists know what that means. At least, you know, if they've been in the studio before, they can, they know if they like a lot or, or a little. Um, you can also, if you know, 
that you're conservative on the input side and you know you're you're not you know killing the mic pre or something like that um then you can put a dsp plug in like the uh like i'll I'll throw up the the bf76 on a on the vocal on the monitor side so you're not printing it but they can still hear the compression and you know it gives you a little more control if it's done right interesting so so that's a good tip too. It's ju- it's just saying like as long as the mic and the mic pre are getting you a good capture of the signal. Yeah. It doesn't matter that much that you're using a compressor plug in like the BF1176 that you're maybe not going to choose actually for the mix. Don't right. get caught up in it like trying to get the perfect everything right then and there. Yeah, cuz you only have and this is something that Bob has taught me a lot. No one's going to worry about or no one's going to say, "Man, the EQ on that vocal was great. You know, you don't have that time to be that precious. You know, do broad strokes. Add a little bit of top end shelf if you want, if you know the mic and if you know the setup. You know, filter out a little bit of low end for the plosives or something like that. Get a decent level. But if the singer sings it great the first time, you're, you're that's it. You got it. You know, you, you don't want to go, wait, hold on, hold on. Paul McCartney, I haven't gotten this vocal right yet, or, you know, hold on, whatever. It, you will get fired so quickly <laughs> because uh, the, our job isn't to get the perfect vocal sound on the way in. It's to get the a good recording and reproduction of a great performance. So without that great performance, if you stifle the artist in any way, you are screwing up your job. You're screwing it up. So, um, so anyway, get a decent level. Find out if they want some compression or not. If so, do it on the monitor side. You know, don't commit to something that's going to be terrible. Although I do have to say, we did a uh, a demo session with Daughtry, Chris Daughtry. This is back, you know, early two thousands, and uh, and he came in, and I had the mic preset probably one click too high. Uh, it was a Neve 10, 1064. I think. And, uh, and he was maybe two clicks too high. Uh, he was just scorching it because he is a very powerful singer. And it was a 67 and had a, a revision B, but it was a black face, uh, 1176 that was going through. It was, that was getting hit pretty hard too. Yeah. That's, that's probably uh, what I'm going to do to your voice on this podcast. Awesome. Just completely scorch it. Yeah. Bring it. <laughs> Make me sound cool. Uh, but man, I listened back. I was embarrassed because he just nailed it the first time. I didn't have any time to to, to set it, and uh, it sounded great in the mix, though the way it hit the because like, it was just on the on the part where it was really you know, kind of soaring in the chorus, the second chorus. He hit it really hard, and it got distorted, and it was a cool distortion. Yeah. So. Uh, it, if it happens, it happens. Where did the cool distortion come from? Do you think it was a thing in the chain? I think it was the distorted? Neve. I'm pretty sure it was the Neve. Right. So the mic pre is the place where it can just typically yeah. distorts. Yeah. And uh, like, had I had it to do over again, I probably would have padded the mic pre, or not the mic pre, but the mic itself. Or, uh, or at That's least tricky given, sometimes because some pads on mics sometimes they kill, sound they're weird. tone killers. Yeah. So I don't know what I would have done, but it was fine. I mean, it was distorted, but it worked out. And it was only a demo, but um, but it did actually add a lot of character. Uh, I liked what it did with it. So um, anyway, that's... Well, that's cool, man. Well, let's talk about another instrument that's important in the mixing stage that you've mm-hmm. gotten quite good at it. Um, 
Blake Shelton. Uh, that's another artist you work with. Well, uh, on a lot Blake, of- I actually only, uh, I think it was just editing or, or tuning. Okay. So right. that just but but here's what I'm getting at is you've done a bunch of country stuff now too. Uh, a little bit. Yeah. Not, not as much. Yeah. Um, yeah. What about, you know, in the, country records that you have mixed or worked on, they have that required uh, big Nashville snare drum sound. Oh yeah. A lot of times. What are some secrets to getting a big country snare sound that that we should know about? Well, you know, I still, I still feel like I'm trying to figure the country side of things out because like I, almost all of my techniques and way of working on the mix uh, stem from Mike Shipley just because I used to watch him, uh, I would. I was able in my space. Uh, it was it was a, an editing suite above the mix room in, in a house, and I would actually watch him. His screen could come up on my screen, and his I had his mix coming through an external. So I would just sit there and listen and watch him mix. So I would just study everything that he did because he was so good. And so what he would do um, is add, and it was by hand, like. You know, maybe. Hold on, that that sounds like um, what I've heard, like Chris Lord Algie's setup described as too. At times, is this a situation where you're in a separate room, same screen, different monitors? He doesn't hear you, but you like talk to each other on a talkback or something. How does it How does it work? It, it was set up so that we could do that, and and he was using the uh, that D command or D control, like the, the same one that, that Jamie had. Uh, and I That's was the hundred thousand dollar mouse. Yeah, yeah, hundred thousand dollar mouse, uh, and he loved it. He absolutely loved it. And then I had a little pro control up in my room, so we were running through the same network. And at the time, you could, like, we actually had a, a USB switch, so we could switch the iLock from one computer to the other when it asked for. It was before you you had to have it plugged in all the right, time. Right, right, right. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, I mean, I was just prepping stuff for Mike anyway. I used to so. do such crazy stuff in here. Like I had two computers <laughs> and I had a switch that would switch the keyboards and the monitors from one computer to the other. Yeah, and stuff. that's exactly what we had, the KVM switch. Stuff. It was yeah, amazing. Yeah. And uh, so I, anyway, the, the intent was we could, you know, I could be working on something up there and then he could switch and listen to what I was doing or vice versa if I had to fix an edit or something like that. But we never ended up using it like that. I would just do all the editing and mix prep and stuff and then send it to him. And then later on, I would, I kind of eased into assisting when his typical assistant was, uh, you know, needed a day off or had to, you know, something else or vacation or something like that. So, um, anyway, we never used it like that, but we, we wanted to. <laughs> so, um, but where were we though? We were talking about the, um, Oh, the get snare. The snare, snare stuff. Yeah. You're yeah. watching the stuff you learned from, from Mike. Yeah. So the thing with Mike and he was so good at this, um, his, his drum sounds were amazing. They, they were, they were present, especially the snare. They were in your face, but they weren't obtrusive. They weren't crushed. They weren't, you know, it was just there and perfect. And so what we what we would do is just load in, you know, 40 different snare samples and like 20 kicks. And and this is how I would approach it later, later on too. So I would have the snare drum that was recorded and I would EQ and try to get it to sound like I wanted. And then I would go through each one and bring up a, a fader and blend it in and see if it matched. If it didn't match, I would just 
toss hide it, and make, yeah. yeah, toss yeah. it, it'd be done. Uh, but then if it would fill in a gap and match the tone, uh, you know, if you would solo up each sample, they probably wouldn't sound too good. Right. You know, they wouldn't uh, have been the ones you would have chosen yeah, by themselves. It, one might have more kind of crack to it. One would have more wash. One would be low. One would be, uh, you know, woody, you know, one have ring, you know, and various different rings, different frequencies and stuff like that. So, you know, I just go through all of the 40 snare drums and there were a few that always seemed to help and work. And then the main snare, especially the the snare bottom, because that had also all the internal groove, all the you know, little rust and little uh, ghost notes and stuff. Uh, those would be still the focus. So you could mute all of the samples and it would still sound like the same snare. You put the samples back in and it would sound just bigger. It would have those missing pieces to it. Samples. So you might end up with a couple of Yeah, it might be 15 samples. 15 samples stay in the mix. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But it, some might be way down there. Some, you know, uh, yeah. And he had some that were like gunshots and, you, you know, and, and he actually has the original like uh, Def Leppard sample right. dry and the uh, awesome. reverb was awesome. pretty cool. All right. So now um, 15 samples getting added. Are they 15 samples playing back from like, I don't think you can do 15 in trigger, but like, did you have a plug-in like trigger back then? Or no. was this like manually on 15 more it tracks? It was manually. And there was a, there was a process and, uh, and it was all sample accurate. What year was this too? This would have been 2004, 2006. Okay. I met so, a guy who was doing some pretty amazing. I learned some amazing drum replacement tricks right around 2003, 2004, maybe. Yeah. And it was, and I'll, I'm just going to like, see if I can remember a little bit. Cause you'd be like, that's the, that, that's the thing. Or you'd be like, no, no I'll never do it that way. <laughs> but it was, um, um, what was the drum replacer audio suite plugin? We, we always use it was sound, sound replacer. replacer. Yeah. So it was sound replacer, which was, which would do a pretty good job if you used it just sort of in stock mode on, for adding a single snare yeah. Or no, I think it would do three samples within sound replacement. Yeah, I think, yeah. So, you, so it would keep three snares together and replace them maybe one time to a snare, uh, you know, and it would, could sound pretty good. You'd get pretty close. But then he said the trick was you had to go in and find like the first waveform of a kick or a snare in there and chop it off so that it had a hard start and it was always exactly the same like phase location of the drum start. And you would manually go through every single snare and do that first. And then Sound Replacer would consistently sample accurately. You could you could load in new samples, come back huh. tomorrow and add it. And you could just layer tracks that way. So was that anything? Not even similar? close. Not no. even close. All right, cool. There you go. All right, well. No, but that's cool. Like I love I love hearing and, you know and, different ways of doing this. And also rock stars, this is to make you understand just how easy we've got it now with something like <laughs> so triggers. Triggers amazing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so. Oh man, I use it all the time. So slates, like, trigger plugin. Now I still uh if it's a, a big mix and there's a budget and everything uh that allows more time, I'll put it in by hand because it when it is sample ac accurate uh, and you have to do the dynamics by hand also. So it doesn't sound like a machine gun snare drum fill, um, you know, and, and know which ones to leave out that are ghosts that are going to come through the main, 
you know, yeah. uh, snare drum track. But so the way that I do it, and it's very hard to explain, um, but I'll try. Uh, I'll try to be quick about it too. But uh, so I use Beat Detective on the snare top and also on the kick in. Um, and I will set it to zero trigger pad and you kind of pull up the threshold. So you're getting all of the snares or all of the kicks, whatever. And then you chop it, you, you know, separate regions and then you hide. Um, uh, do you have detective. the, uh, the buffer or what's it called? The pad trigger pad. That's a zero. Trigger pad. It's a zero. It's so a it's, zero. It's, the, where the chop is, is right at the beginning it. of that sound. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so then, and it, it's better if you do this with an uncompressed snare, because if there's compression, you'll actually, you can see the, like the woof of the air from the snare or for, from the stick. The stick of approaching the head yeah, of the approaching snare. Approaching it. And, and so that'll give you sometimes a false trigger. So sometimes you have to do low emphasis instead of enhanced or whatever it is. Anyway, um, so you chop it all up and then I have a, a template of all of my samples that are already sample accurate. And so that the sample starts right at kind of like what you were saying, right at the, uh, uh, the transient of the sample. So, um, so that's already in a session. They're all grouped and I make them. So I'll consolidate them. So they're all the same length and I'll give a whole lot of empty space at the end. And so they're grouped and then, I import those right under the, the snare and using uh, the hand tool, I'll click and I, I've done it so many times. I don't know what the key command is, I know that but there's feeling. a snap to uh, function. I forget if it's like control or command or something, but if you click on it, it'll snap all of your grouped uh, snare samples to, oh, important part, sorry, go back to that original snare that you've chopped up you have to lock it. Right. So you can't move it around by accident. Yes. You have to lock it. And you also, it's better if you take off the gain info so you don't accidentally click on that. Um, but use, using the hand tool, you click on the snare, the original snare region with the hit. And then you snap to, and that gives you your first one. And it's right at that, that same uh, cut point. Right. And then you go to the next one and it's like, I think it's control option. I don't know. I've done, I just, it's muscle memory at this point, but I think it's control option. If you hit those two together and then you click up on the snare hit and then down on your sample and that is snap to and copy. So you just go click, 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 click. So you go up to the original, then click down. So you're basically highlighting a little region of that snare, the original snare that you've, uh, that you've chopped up mm -hmm. and that's the starting point and it'll snap the sample and copy the sample to that point. Yeah. So I think that's what I used to do too. I would take, um, I would uh, do something like that where I'd tab to the right, transient of the transient. snare and then I would, I would have that uh, the cursor grouped to the track below it and I would just hit paste yeah. And you can get it to paste the snare sample there and tab to the next one, paste. Yeah. Paste, and you could like do it, that. you could do it like that. And if you chop it up, because I, I used to have a macro set up on my uh on my trackball before they they wouldn't allow you to do that. We were just talking about that earlier. Um and I would do I whatever that key command 
it's like tab semicolon V P or something like right, that. Right, uh, right. So I had that set up as a button on my mouse and, uh, and then they took it away. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> which again, luckily we've got trigger now. Ross, yeah. So, trigger so is way that. better, way better. Yeah. Just check, check the phase of it. Um, um, well, cool, man. Well, we're going, going long. So yeah. let, let's see here. Um, uh, some other artists, pretty amazing that you got to work with. You mixed a uh, live record, uh, the the Speak Now World Tour live for Taylor Swift. Yes. Um, any any uh, quick tips you want to remind um, share with us about what you learned about mixing a live album? I noticed the the crowd noise was a big deal on that record. Yeah. So the crowd noise. Um, <laughs> well, if if you're going about recording a live record, make sure you have good live mics because what they had done. And I think it was just the sound guys. So they, they were just recording it. The uh, audience mics were facing toward the stage. Oh, no. They're supposed to face towards the audience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they were like big room mics. So they were completely unusable. Uh, so they ended up actually uh, hiring a truck to uh, to go to the Atlanta show. And they recorded two shows of that. We had to put them in. It was painstaking to try to get- Just put an audience. Yeah, to put yeah, in an audience, but to get yeah. the bleed to line up and not sound weird. And that whole process was like, it was it was crazy. That's a whole nother Yeah, that's one of those episode. things. So if you're going to record a live show, um, maybe even a club, I, mean, I think most of us, our first chance is like, you know, yeah. we go record our friend's band at a club. You yeah. Know? But it's like, Record the close mics on stage, get get a really good stereo miking of the stage, I think, because that's where you get all the power of the liveness of the stage. Yeah. And then the close mics give you that detail of not having things sound lost. But yeah. then just like put mics out. You know, you could stick a mic in the middle of the audience somewhere, right above everybody's mm -hmm. heads, just pointing down. And just remember, that's not part of the sound of the music. That's part of the sound of the in-betweens. Yeah. And that is so in. important for a live record. Because it's really hard to to fake that. And I had to mix another live record uh, about a year, year and a <laughs> There's half nothing ago. worse than a live record where you don't, where it doesn't sound like there's anybody at the show. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like you want to make it rock. You want to make it sound like it's 10 times as big. But yeah, the, the, like there was one where they, uh, they didn't record any audience mics. I'm like, this is a live, are you kidding me? And, uh, and so it was, you know, you had to find some canned audience and, uh, which you can only do so much with, but, you know, just get, try to ride it up in the right spots. And then I would take all of the bleed on stage, if there were any like chants or hand claps or whatever, and gain those up like 40 dB just to get some life yeah, into yeah, it, exactly, you know, like exactly. use any kind of bleed that you can, you know, if there was a mic that was on that no one was like some background. But vocal. you also don't really want to have a mic too close to anybody because yeah. then you're just going to hear those single voices yes, a lot. You know? exactly. We'll be talking about like getting a beer at the snack yeah. bar. Audience miking is crucial for uh for live mixes but yeah. um but yeah the the taylor thing that was that was man it was a process but uh and it was then, fun and then uh, another band that is uh, quite good live that you worked with you did a couple of projects i think with fish yes that's that a was, trip i was a big fish fan you know before we we did those records but uh you know i was i had this vision of going in and it it would be like all fogged out in there and you know Everyone was totally relaxed, but so were you recording them? Yeah, yeah, we recorded oh, them man. here in town. I know we're going long, but I got to ask you: 
<laughs> what did you learn? Like, what was a way to record fish? I mean, I, I assume they want to play together. They're not too interested in overdubs. Yeah, yeah. It was it was totally that. First of all, or for, first of all, you're always in record because they could just take they could just look at each other and start jamming and come up with a song. Like you you don't do playlists with fish. You do you just one t- session that keeps rolling. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like cool, you maybe diff- songs will be a different session, but you just keep on rolling and you put markers in uh as you go. Now, do you Okay, so now here's the thing that happens to the nervous engineer. We go <laughs> What if it, it drops out of record? I don't want to lose my thing. I, What's the technique to manage that? Technique to manage that when you know that they're having a little break for just a second, you hit space bar and then immediately start recording again right. and it's and you'd make it in uh you you turn off the settings so that the the cursor doesn't rewind back to zero. <laughs> right. When you hit record, you have to have the cursor follow your playhead. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's N, I think is the quick key for that because I always accidentally hit it. Yeah, that's the one we always <laughs> accidentally hit. <laughs> So, yeah, so always record. And then, um, you know, they, they're just, they're such a cool band. And they're taskmasters. I mean, they just, when it's time to record, they are working. That's like, I was so blown away by their work ethic. And uh, they're all great guys. And we, I was, that, those were some really amazing sessions. And I went up to the barn once and you got to hang out with, with them and uh, for rehearsal and pre-pro and stuff. I right, did. Super cool. Trey Anastasio's Guitar Town. Give us the secrets. The secret is don't fuck it up. I mean, it's just, it's there. You know, it's it's that, uh, I forget the name of it, but that guitar that he uses. And then it's his playing, the style. I mean, you're just not going to replicate it. And I, he's using a Bogner now. Um, oh, cool. But we, in the records, we also had him play, you know, a telly and had him play some different guitars and, and stuff. And it still sounds like him. Yeah, but there's something magical about that guitar. His whole setup when he, so when he comes to do, uh, we call it like Guitar Week, you know, and and it's Trey and he comes down and he sings and and plays like he brings his whole live rig. They have a whole a truck that gets shipped from the from wherever they're playing, and they unload, take a full day of setup. Right? Why would he have? separate stuff he's just always on the road yeah yeah exactly and and when you go to record fish they don't bring like a box truck for from like a nashville session they bring an 18 wheeler that they back up and they load everything they have two techs with you know their whole tech rig there like a live show it's a live show yeah it's insane now do you feel like you're required to mic up all that stuff or do you just i guess so because there's no time to think yeah, I mean, we did take um, we did take some time, uh, and there was pre-pro also. And the great thing is, uh, so Ben is their engineer up in uh, up in uh, Vermont at the barn, and so he had he actually brought they, they've got an API, and he brought all of the two hundred series uh, mic pre's. So a lot of it was done on the same mic pre's, and then. If there was a fix or an overdub or something that needed to happen on drums, they would just record it up there in the barn, uh, which was awesome. And it blended right, so really had, well. You had the consistency of, yeah. of sounds. So we tried to cool. try to make that as, as seamless as possible. I, there were some different mics and stuff like that, but generally speaking, it was it was the same same texture. Uh but yeah, I mean, mic up all the toms, mic up all the do little things. Do you think you still thing. did the SM seven and the and the Royer for the guitar mics? Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what I used. 
That's cool, man. <laughs> and, now we know. Yeah. And uh, I think it was a C24 uh, on Fishman's overhead, which is just easy and sounds great. You know, st- it's a stereo C12 in essence. So they just played at Bonnaroo when we were there. Oh, this, yeah. This, I missed uh, that. Here in the summer. Um, and um, saw some of that. And then my, my assistant, um, Will Keensel, is a great engineer. He's, mm-hmm. he's my head engineer at, at Bonnaroo now. Um, he was telling me all about some of the backstory of fishing. He was like, dude, rage page side is the rage side. <laughs> Apparently that's like a big deal. That's a, <laughs> that's a big expression. It means like if you go to that side of the stage where page, uh, the keyboard player is playing it, then everybody's really like getting wild and partying or something. Oh, that's, mm-hmm. that's crazy. Yeah, man. They're just such a cool, such a cool band. Great people, you know, and I page is just a sweetheart and so talented. They're all I'm just such a big fan. I was nice. a fan before, and that's that's one of those sessions where I'm I'm sitting there once once we got the kind of got going, and you know I got the monitor side uh, good in the control room and and stuff. I'm sitting there. I, I would just like get lost in the music and and just imagine myself back, you know, in my dorm room listening to yeah. to Junta, which I found is Junta. I always called it Junta, but it's it's Junta. Is that the one with the horse being no, that's hoist. No, that's hoist. Uh, Junta is uh, it's got Esther and uh, uh, is that the bouncing around the room. It's, a, uh, it's the double CD. Uh, if there is that anymore, <laughs> well, very cool, man. Um, well, uh, I think you know we may have to have you back on the show at some point so we can really just like focus in on some other topics too. But um, why don't I take you to a final closing question here? Um, yes. This one is hypothetical. Okay. Um, you've done a lot of stuff. You've been through a lot of experiences and you've learned a lot. Um, but if you could go back now to the early years and find young Justin yes. playing trombone, working <laughs> on your trombone shops, wanting to be in uh, you know a psychedelic rock band one day. <laughs> Um, what advice would you go back and give yourself like right when Justin was discovering the studio and thinking like, man, I'd like to do this. If you could go back and give yourself one bit of advice, say, listen, dude, this is the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the studio yourself one day. What, what advice would you go back and give yourself? Uh, I mean, I would say if maybe I was a little bit older and just getting into it, I would say focus on the business side. Like remember, it's still a business. You you do need to get paid because you do need to, you know, pay your bills and all that stuff. Uh, that's important. I think that gets lost a lot in the in the passion which we need to have. And I think a lot of us, if we go through the hell that we go through to get, you know, uh, what are some? Um, if you were going to just give us a couple of business tips that you feel like you learned along the way. Oh man, I'm still learning. That is not my, <laughs> that's not my strong suit, but. Or maybe mistakes around the business. That, I, that's usually where the learning comes from, right? Yeah. I would say, you know, do have a rate for yourself and, you know, talk to other people, figure out what a, a decent rate is and don't sell yourself short, but, but have a rate. Cause then if you have a spot to start, you can negotiate. Um, a lot of times, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know. What do you have? And then you're already at a disadvantage, you know, um, and uh, so that, that's that's a that's a big thing. Um, and then also, 
so often we're the first ones to talk ourselves down in price, you know, and it happens. It's, it's any freelance guy, especially if you're passionate about it, you know, and I do it all the time. I say, well, you know, my normal price is this, but you know, I guess I could do it before they even say no to that first price. You are saying, but I can, I can, Give you some more little wiggle room. I know, you know? I know. It's such a, we're like our own worst enemy. Yeah. And, and it's because we want to do it and we love doing it, you know? And like when we're excited about a project, the last thing we want to think about is the money side because that's the uncomfortable side. I hate it's, talking it's about like money. It's like fishing. When you, when you go to fish, you learn when you get that nibble, you don't <laughs> just rip the rod away. Yeah. Right away. You have to like, yeah, let, let it, it get a good nibble and then yeah. you get a little tug and then you, and then you start reeling it in. Yeah. But yeah, when you try and like, when you, when you react too much because of that first phone call, that first possibility. Yeah. Or, you know, even if they do a little bit of a head nod and a grimace or something like that, that's not, they're not saying no yet. You know, you can even give them, you know, say, Hey, listen, if I'll mix it, if, if you don't like it, don't pay me. No hard feelings. I won't do it. If you do like it, this is my rate, you know? Right. That's not the worst thing to do. Right. Um, right. Then you're kind of betting on yourself. So I would definitely tell myself early on, have some confidence in yourself, you know, because we are in a, I think all engineers are like that. You don't give yourself enough credit. You don't, uh, you don't have the confidence because we're all like, we hear the mistakes in what we do. We don't hear the greatness. We still hear the mistakes. Yeah. No matter what, you listen to it and go, oh, I can't listen to that. But, you know, the hi-hat's up, you know, half a dB too much. Or, you know, I I, I pan the vocal the same yeah, side as the, the whatever. Just remember, Rockstars, your greatest mentor, the person, your your number one hero still thinks that they're doing crappy work and here's all the mistakes. <laughs> they yeah. Everyone I've talked to, my, like Mike Shipley, he couldn't listen to the stuff he did 10 years ago. You know, like he, yeah, he thought he was, he never spoke highly of himself. So, you know, that's just... And he was, uh, he was an absolute genius. So yeah, anyway, nice man. That's what I have. To say. Well, so thank you so much for joining us hey, on the podcast, dude. Awesome having, for having you here. Me. Let the rock stars know how they can find you online and follow you. How can they reach out to you if they need to make their next record? Yes. So uh, my website is www.justincordelu.com, and on it you can find my email. You can email me directly through the website. You can see a list of credits, and uh, and please reach out. And it's C-O-R-T-E-L-Y-O-U. Yes, that's it. Cortell, you. Yes. Nice. Don't don't make me cordle you. <laughs> awesome, dude. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. Yes, dude. thank uh, you for having so me. So many cool stories. Ah, really fun to listen to this stuff. <laughs> and I hope we got to enough. I know I said we were going to do a lot of mixing stuff, and I think we touched on some really good elements. So, um, But, you know, mixing as well comes from recording yes and I'll, recording, I'll leave right? you with one last thing mike always said just turn the knob till it sounds good yep so you know just turn the knob till it sounds good don't freak out and if you keep turning the knob back to the same spot maybe take a note so you remember where that is maybe yeah you can just turn it there before you start yeah that's not a bad idea <laughs> awesome, dude. awesome thanks man well we'll see you around the studio all right sounds good take all it right, easy cheers 
Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, then please share this episode with your friends on social media and leave a rating and review on iTunes to help the podcast reach more rock stars like yourself. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to rsrockstars.com review for an easy explanation. And remember to hit the subscribe button to keep up with weekly episodes. And if you're ready to make your best record ever now, then head over to Recording Studio Rockstars Academy, where you can start with my free course at mixmasterbundle.com and if you want more free content from recording studio rockstars all you have to do is go to rsrockstars.com email again that's rsrockstars.com email to enter your name and email and i'll keep you in the loop with articles videos podcast updates and even free gear giveaways for your studio just look for the link in the show notes below thanks so much for listening and thanks for being a rockstar i'm lid shaw and this is recording studio rockstars now go make make great music.